All right, ladies and gentlemen of the Bizzlecast, welcome to the official Bizzlecast review of Star Trek Beyond. If you know anything about this podcast, you know there was no way I wasn't doing this, uh, that I was going to do this without my buddy, my wingman, co-contributor, the Spock to my Kirk, Matty G, aka Goose. Matt. Hey, everybody. It's funny you call me a wingman because the most famous... Uh, movie character named Goose was in fact a wingman. Um, but moving on, oh. is that from <laughs> Top Gun? That's not where I got my nickname from, oh. but that is who I'm referring to. Um, oh, I, 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 totally actually, I actually never saw Top Gun as a kid. I saw it for the first time as a like after I'd gotten that as a nickname. I picked that up when I was 15 at summer camp, and I was like, "Man, this guy copied my nickname." And then I I went back and thought about it a little more, and I said, "I don't think that happened." Um, but yeah, I think I think there's the thing where if if you're super Jewy last name, you right. know, like I'm I'm super Jewy, but I don't have a super Jewy last name. I have tons of nicknames: the Bizzle, J Biz, right, exactly. JB, whatever. But if you have a very Jewish last name, I feel like that's you know a, a impetus to step in and get a nickname. Yeah, it's a camp that's where thing. Goose came from. I mean, yeah, my, it's definitely a camp thing. It's also a family thing. My dad's nickname when he was younger was Durr, which was short for Gander, which is a male goose. My brother was known uh-huh. as Little Goose for a little for a while, although I think some of that was just uh, we went to the same summer camp, and so they I was Goose, so he was Little Goose. But it's a whatever. Let's get back to Star Trek, which is a lot more. Yes, fun. so no one cares. Absolutely. About. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so okay, guys. So this is going to be an interesting podcast because the roles are going to be reversed here a little bit. Um, just because, uh, as Matt and I talked, you know, off mic, and if you've listened to our podcast, you know, you know, Matt tends to be a little bit more skeptical going into things, and he, he tends to be a harsher judge of movies when he sees them, and I totally respect that. I also, you know, separate great movies from good and mediocre movies. I think I just have a little bit of a lower bar, Matt. I think it's fair to say in terms of like movies that entertain me, right? You know, like uh, I, I, there are things that bother other people that don't really bother me, which is why I'm like the one person who likes to. Terminator Genesis, but totally understand why other people don't, and I'm not offended by it whatsoever. That's I can understand good. It. You're only you're like you might be the only person who who likes Terminator it's just Genesis. Me. It's just me. Although if you have a thing for Amelia Clark, it's almost worth it for that. Anyways, uh, we're talking about Star Trek here, and I think okay. So we did our podcast what a few weeks ago. When when did we do our our sort of Star Trek personal historiography slash predictions for the future podcast? Like a month ago, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I want to say three to four weeks ago sounds about right. All right. So three to four weeks ago, I, I think it's safe to say I was feeling slightly more optimistic than you at that point. Um, and I you know, talked with Matt. I told him I was going to go see it opening night. We're recording this the night of Friday, July 29th. I saw it, I guess, eight days ago the, on, on previews night, Thursday, July 21st. And Matt, you saw it... Uh, Tuesday or Wednesday night. Tuesday or Wednesday this past week. So... Tuesday, you know, I believe. We, we had floated the idea, you know, as Bizzlecast listeners know, you know, that it would be stupid for us to not at least float the idea of doing a podcast about this. But I was worried that Matt wasn't going to like it, and I wasn't going to like it enough to make it worth it. So I get a text today around noon, and Matt says, podcast tonight? And I knew immediately what he's referring to, Star Trek. 
and I'm go and I'm, I'm thinking, Matt, before I text you back, I'm like, oh no, he hates it. He wants to go on a rant. <laughs> We're gonna get online. He's gonna rant about how horrible this is, and Star Trek's dead, and he never wants to see another Star Trek property again. And so I kind of tested the waters a little bit, and I was like, oh yeah, maybe. Like, what did you think of the movie? Like, what would you rate it? And Matt says, at least an eight point nine out of ten, maybe a solid nine. I was like, whoa! I, I was so blown away. I, I thought it was really good too. But we're gonna start with you on this one. And Bizzlecast listeners, just so you know, we're gonna do a few minutes of non-spoiler review, just general impressions here and what we thought about the movie, and then we'll jump into spoilers just in case you haven't seen it yet. We will let you know when that happens. So, Matt, walk us through from the moment you sat down in the movie theater to the moment that you came home and started thinking about this movie, Star Trek Beyond. All right, so I saw it with my younger brother who came to visit me on the Cape, and we had both wanted to see it. I went to check it out. I probably was going to wind up seeing it no matter what, but once I had somebody to go with, that kind of was the last impetus I needed. You know, one of the reasons I don't see a lot of movies is because I'm by myself a lot of the time, and sometimes I can, I'm okay with that, but other times I just don't want to bother. So we sat down movie gets it gets into the flow of things pretty quickly um i'd read a couple of reviews that were positive because this was not one of those things like batman v superman where i was going to try to stay off media as much as i could um you know i wanted to know what the consensus was people seemed to like it so i sat down i liked how quickly it got into kind of the action you know even the opening scene where kirk is trying to work out this peace deal the aliens look like extras from the hobbit which i didn't like but it's still a the funny cgi on those aliens was not good it was horrible but it was mm. still a funny scene where it was funny you know they they roll down and you think they're gonna be super dangerous but it turns out they're only about like two feet tall and so the fight becomes something else entirely and at that moment i realized okay at least this movie is gonna try to be fun which is gonna put it above uh into darkness which was really not fun at all um, and that Star Trek Into Darkness, the second reboot one. Mm-hmm. Um, and more fun, it seemed like, immediately than almost any of the major blockbusters that came out this summer. And, uh, and if I can interrupt briefly, an actual mission that had nothing to do with the main storyline. Yes. It was all, all world-building. I appreciate that. Go ahead. And it very clearly became... It, it became clear to me very quickly this was not going to have anything to do with Earth that all of this was going to be deep space. Um, And I kind of dug that, that they were finally letting a show about interplanetary travel be about planets that aren't Earth. Um, And so then it gets into the plot. They get to, uh, we're not going to spoil anything, they get to a space station. I won't say more than that. And I was really blown away by the visuals of the space station called Yorktown. Yeah, no, we can talk about the space station because the, the early part, the, no major plot spoilers there. It's 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 straight out of the far future sci-fi. I talk about you know Ian Banks, Asimov, mm-hmm. like you know to be that huge, but it had the Inception thing going. Yeah, you know, yeah, it has basically. It's this. It's a starbase, but it's not like Deep Space Nine or if you watch Star Trek or kind of how starbases are normally portrayed, where they're just kind of static objects. It's got. It's massive. It's got rings that move that generate the gravity, but there's buildings on the rings so that the scene is constantly flowing and changing. And if the whole reboot style was to get away from kind of the three-camera static shooting style of the TV shows, this, like, uh, 
not mind-blowing, that's hyperbole, but this very visually attractive station. It was borderline mind-blowing as Space Station goes. It's all rolled into one. You've got this free-flowing, beautiful, really interestingly designed and uniquely designed thing that's also a good metaphor for the Federation because it's got aliens from everywhere living together and working together, and it's all harmonious. Um, so from there, I, w- I was really hooked. You know, then they get on the Enterprise, and I liked the redesigned bridge. I thought the bridge looked better than it he had had in either of the two reboots. Um, and then I was pretty much in for it. You know, a lot of action early on, a lot of good space fighting, uh, and then it gets into the plot, and the plot's fine. It's not an overthought plot. Sorry for the rhyming there, uh, which is one of the many problems within a darkness. That's called and- freestyling, my friend. Yeah, exactly. I uh, I rip it hardcore. Anyway, <laughs> figured you wouldn't expect me to make that joke. Anyway, uh, so it gets into the plot. The plot is simple. It's straightforward, which is great because it doesn't leave room for all the kinds of holes and logical questions that you ask with Into Darkness specifically. But even the, the 08 reboot movie has some plot holes that don't make a lot of sense. This one Strip down story. They crash on a planet. They meet the bad guy. They have to get off the planet and stop the bad guy. That's not spoiling anything. Uh, and then it's over. And that gives you a lot of room to play with just to focus on action, to focus on making it fun and exciting and uh, you know, bringing in a lot of the film beats that Justin Lin, the director, mm-hmm. you know, really honed to perfection with the later – Who's uh, a huge Star Trek nut? Yeah. He actually dropped multiple personal projects of his to do this movie when JJ came to him. He he's seen every episode of every show multiple times. And in fact, him and Simon Pegg, one of the writers, right. they, they would watch like two episodes a night during the making of it of like the original series. Go ahead. And I have no doubt that Simon Pegg is also probably a pretty good Star Trek, uh, a pretty big Star Trek fan, just because he yeah. seems to be a fan of all nerd ephemera. Um, but I find it telling that J.J. Abrams has gone on record saying he doesn't – he wasn't a Star Trek fan. He doesn't even like it that much. And he went one for two at best. Justin Lin, an actual Star Trek fan, created something that felt a lot closer to what the Star Trek shows were. We'll get into all of that. Yep. Um, and I appreciated that. You know, This felt more like Star Trek than I knew, but modernized You know, with – some of the ways that you maybe can't do that as much in a two-hour movie as you could in a TV mm-hmm. show. Um, so I liked it. Um, and I think between Into Darkness sucking and this... Well, this, very- is, this is my next question for you, actually. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into the spoilery version of this in a little bit. Mm-hmm. The non-spoilery version. What did this movie do in sort of a general sense that Into Darkness uh, either failed to do or just didn't even try to? Well, for one... Um, Hmm. A little tougher question to answer than I thought. Um, One, it was not so full of its own crap. You know, it it didn't seem to take itself nearly as seriously. Kirk says in the opening, uh, you know, his captain's log monologue Mm -hmm. that everything is becoming episodic. Episodic. So even it is it's self-aware a little bit. Not so much that it becomes smarmy and obnoxious, but just enough self-awareness of kind of what star trek is that you can play with it um whereas the into darkness especially really ignored all of that um and a point somebody else made i can't remember what podcast i heard it on is 
if you're going to do what Abrams did and destroy all of continuity, why would you then go and make your second movie a bad, watered-down version of Wrath of Khan, a movie that already exists? This movie, even though it has a couple of beats that reminded me of uh, the search for Spock, you know, mm-hmm. the ship is destroyed. Uh, yep. Oh, sorry. Um, no, we'll you're right. That later. For Spock. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, okay. And this is – no, that's not a spoiler. And this is – sorry, people. If you didn't figure out the Enterprise was being destroyed after watching a single trailer, I mean, they yeah. show it being destroyed. And one of my big problems is that while they didn't release that many trailers and teasers, there was enough things that happened late in the movie, actually, that right. I was, was spoiled on that really bothered me. The destruction of the Enterprise was spectacular, and we knew it was coming. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, that's ahead. a problem with all trailers is people say they give away too much of the movie. A lot of people are complaining about that with uh, a lot of these new Marvel ones uh like well we talked off mic i'm not gonna reveal it but the thing that was spoiled for me is a very very non-traditional thing that happened at the end uh that you wouldn't normally associate with star trek i suppose but um yeah i don't know i mean honestly my my problem with star trek into darkness wasn't that it was a bad replica of Khan. it wasn't that it was too self-referential it's just that the real the character relationships weren't written well i mean other than the relationship yeah, other than the, I mean, the only thing Into Darkness did better than this movie was the Ahura Spock relationship. You know, that that was yeah. the only thing that made sense in Into Darkness. Everything else made no sense. No no one's motivations made sense. Christopher Pike's motivations didn't make sense. How Kirk was treated with his decision made no sense. So, it was really more the internal dynamics for me yeah. uh, that bothered me. Whereas this movie, as you were sort of saying, and I'll give my quick mini review here and then we'll get into spoilers is that it, it it seemed to be speaking to both Trek and non-Trek fans at the yes, same time. Absolutely. Which, which the first reboot did, and the second did not, Into Darkness. And, and into, to be fair, sorry, just to interrupt no, real go. quick, that is something also that Justin Lin has proven he's pretty good at, because as much as the Fast and Furious movies are kind of car porn movies, uh, especially the early ones, which I don't think he was actually involved with. I think he came on for maybe five and six or four no, five No, 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 no. He's done the last two. They, it was almost dead after five. He's done six and seven, which both did really well, both uh, audience-wise and relatively quickly. You may want to double-check that. I thought another guy did seven, um, but whatever. He came on when they were good. He found a way to make a movie about cars where cars are very much fetishized appeal to people like me who don't really care about fancy cars and, and, and drag racing and all that crap, you know, and just found a way to make something that was palatable to both the niche audience the franchise was targeting and the general audience. And he did it again with Star Trek, where, like you were saying, he found a way to appeal to Star Trek hardcore fans, maybe a little more than Into Darkness or even the 08 reboot did, um, and also create a movie that was fun and just entertaining and would draw in a general audience. Yeah, you're right. He did, uh, let's see, Furious 3, 4, 5, and 6, not 7. 3 is terrible. uh, Tokyo Tokyo Drift Drift. is unwatchably bad. Uh, But it was also the last of the truly just pure car porn movies after the first two. 4 I've never seen, I don't think. Five is very good. Six is fantastic. Uh, six yeah. is really, really, really fun. Um, well, I just, rock, you yeah. know, go ahead. I, I highly recommend everybody um, 
If you don't listen to uh, Empire Magazine's podcast, it's excellent. It's a UK-based, it's like, you know, variety, but way, way higher class. Mm -hmm. Um, And the podcasters are way less annoying than most of the sort of hipster podcasters in the USA. Um, They appreciate nerd stuff while liking artistic movies at the same time, which is what I'm always trying to do and not that many podcasts do. It's like one or the other. People are super pretentious or too nerdy. I'm always trying to find that space in the middle. Empire does a good job of that. They managed to balance getting inside their interviews with all of these people and still being relatively objective when it comes to reviews and so forth. Anyways, they did an hour-long interview with the director, Justin Lin, who we've been talking about, an hour-long interview uh, with Simon Pegg, who co-wrote the finished version of the movie, and we'll get into how you know this this movie was in was in limbo for a little while uh, with a guy named Doug Jung. Um, but Justin Lin said the main lesson he took from Fast and Furious to the Star Trek movie was the notion of family. Mm-hmm. And, and how he rebuilt the Fast and Furious. It sounds ridiculous with Fast and Furious, but he says, you know, when he found his muse when it came to Fast and Furious, essentially, it was realizing that the characters were a family, as weird of a family as it is, some of the car porn and so forth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, 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 you know, like, uh, I randomly turned on, I think, Fast 6 recently and just watched, like, 30 minutes of it, and it's just like, you can just tell the character interaction is mm-hmm. there. It's not my kind of thing. And I think, I mean... And this will be my final thought, and then we'll head into spoilers. <laughs> they went way out of their way in this movie to make sure all characters had a voice, I think, in a way that wasn't in- true in the first two movies. Wasn't always successful, but they tried. Yeah, I, I'm, I would say almost everybody. One of my biggest complaints is that Uhura has nothing to do in this Nothing, film. and I, I have mean, tons she, of ideas of what she could have done, yes. I, I, it doesn't matter what she could or couldn't have done. Honestly, I don't know where these movies go from here. You got to figure Zoe Saldana is going to start getting really busy in the next two to three years or continue to be really busy. Quinto so, already says he's done, but maybe that'll change. He seems Okay, to be- so maybe this is all – maybe we're not, not going to get a fourth movie, so maybe it, it's irrelevant what they did with this. We are getting a fourth movie with Chris Pine, <laughs> who somehow meets his father, played by Chris Oh, Hemsworth. right. I forgot about that. All right. So yeah, but, but it might not be this crew, yeah. Right. Well, it could be that maybe they're eyeing Jayla as a new female uh, lead for the – not lead, but you know, a, a female character that can ha- t- take over some of the screen time that Zoe Saldana had. And so if this movie was a little bit about minimizing Uhura in case they had to get rid of her later, uh, I, can, I can understand why they might take that approach. All right, people. So uh, just really quickly, because I didn't really talk much about it, and then we're going to go in the spoiler section. I really like this movie. Uh, I went to see it in an RPX theater, which is sort of halfway between an IMAX and a regular. So it's a pretty big screen, and we were just sitting a little too close for the Justin uh, Lin, you know, Fast and Furious-style photography. Mm-hmm. It, it gave me a headache almost. I've been meaning to see it a second time. And I think I'm going to like it more on the second time. But the action stuff was just like so crazy. I know what was going on. I love the character stuff. I had heard going into it that the Bones-Spock relationship was excellent. And I really yeah. enjoyed that a lot. That's um, what, to me, stole the show yeah. was uh, Urban and, and Quinto together. All right. So let's um, jump into the spoiler section here. Let's jump into the spoiler section. So you've been warned, people. You got a little sense. Matt and I both like this movie. Um, we're gonna give some more reasons why. Um, so why? Yeah, why don't you start there, man? With, with, with what was clearly the highlight of the movie from a narrative and character standpoint. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the scenes. 
I liked the the premise that okay, so we're getting into spoilers. Their their ship gets blown up. They crash on this planet. Oh. It's a made up planet, so I don't e- you know it's not one that's in uh, Star Trek canon. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so I have no idea what it's called, but they crash on a planet and they all get broken up into little mini groups. Uh, Kirk winds up with Chekhov, which is kind of cool, just because they don't really interact with each other otherwise. Yeah. Um, I would have put Zoe there. That's that was my idea. I'll get back to that later. That's where I would have put Ahura with those guys. Yeah, I don't mind that they didn't do that, just because the love triangle between the three of them I think is overstated. There's I think no triangle. She has no interest right. in him. He, exactly. He's getting caught and, between their relationship because he's friends with both of them. I like. Yeah, that I, I kind of think that's been beaten to death at okay. this point. Um, and so Uhura winds up with Chekhov. They get kidnapped. It's one of the things that I actually find a little bit – or they're taken prisoner. Um, I find that a little problematic just because it's just her talking about a male character, which is one of those things that men don't always recognize how often that shit happens and how problematic it might it continues to be. Well, you've complained about this with Uhura the entire time. I didn't feel the same way you do until this movie. I was totally cool with Zoe's role in the first two because she was so, from a leadership standpoint, she was part of what was keeping everything together with Spock and Kirk. And so I actually liked her in the first two movies. This one, she had nothing to do. And it was yeah. almost insulting. You have to wonder, does she have too many other gigs going on, you know, with Guardians and everything? I don't know. Well, the first two, in both of them, she actually uses her linguistic training to, in some way that narratively matters. And, you know, there's the scene where in Into Darkness where she's trying to talk down the Klingons who want to kill them because she can speak Klingon. There's the whole thing with decoding the Romulan transmission. Another thing I hated about Into Darkness was they cock-teased us with Klingons for two minutes and then it was all over. Yeah, we got some weird-looking Klingons, but whatever. And I like that in the first... Uh, reboot, it establishes that she's fairly career-oriented herself and that she has real goals for herself and that she's not afraid to challenge people if she feels like she's not being allowed to pursue those goals. Uh, in this one, she really... None of that matters. She doesn't. She gets one fight scene and then the rest of it is just talking about men who are coming to, to rescue them. It didn't even um, look like her. I don't know if it was the makeup or what. It was just, She's it just older-looking... Like yeah, I, I don't go there. Do not go there. She is still a very young, beautiful woman. I'm not denying that at all. Um, but everybody in this <laughs> sorry, movie, that was a little intense. <laughs> okay, no, I mean, look, I, I I have been chewing out a movie for being set for doing something that falls back on kind of sexist stereotypes, sure. and if I'm doing it myself, I should be called out on it. Sure. I would say everybody in this film looks a fair amount older than yeah. they did, especially in 2008, which like, worked for the themes of this movie. Yeah. Sure. I mean, Pine looks 2009. Does not look like the young kid that he was in the, the 08 movie. Uh, Chekhov looks older. Sulu. I mean, Simon Pegg looks like he's middle aged, which he is, and that's fine. Um, but what I was getting back to with Bones and I love. I know you didn't like Jayla, but I loved how she kept calling him Montgomery Scotty. That, yeah, that, that, was, that, that was endearing. Yeah. Um, we'll get into why I wasn't nuts about Jayla. Critically, um, she was extremely well received, which doesn't make your viewpoint less important. But I was just interested. It was interesting that uh, an alien who, in many ways, is a typical Trek alien, uh, it was so well received by the but by the public uh, critics. But they also liked the movie in general. But sorry, go ahead, keep going. All right. So one of the things that um people have commented on is in the original show the original star trek series which which really quickly was 60 years or 50 years ago and that makes 
that was the, made the release of this movie really um kind of special, right? And that was the fiftieth anniversary. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, um, but in that show, the main trinity, the main three are Bones, Spock, yep. and McCoy. They call and them the Holy lot, Trinity, apparently. Yeah, whatever they're called, they were the three. They were the they were best friends with each other on the show. Um, and the whole show was kind of about their dynamic with each other more than anybody else. Now, what a lot of people have commented is whether it's good or bad, the new movies basically replaced Bones with Uhura. And Bones has not all that much to do in the first one, in the 08 movie. And then he has almost nothing to do and really maybe only five lines in all of Into Darkness. What this movie does is really reestablish that it's Bones, McCoy, and Kirk. And the way they do that is they pair Kirk and – I'm sorry. They pair and that's why you need Bones Jayla. and Spock. Um, I keep saying McCoy uh, – I'm sorry. Bones, Spock, and Kirk. That's the trinity. Right. But that's ex- – but, but man, that – I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's exactly why you need Jayla because right. you can't just have three white dudes in 2016 in a Star Trek movie, you know? Sure. I'm sorry. You can't do it. And Chekhov was the fourth because he was with Kirk, you know? And because we were I, – I, I don't uh, – sorry. I, I understand all of that. I'm only saying that this felt true to the original yes. uh, dynamic of the show. Yes. And that's one and of the things And the movies, that, actually. And, yeah. and the, the original Star Trek movie, all of them, those three are the three major characters. By far, it's not even close. Yeah, I mean, in Star Trek V, which is terrible, it starts with the three of them hiking or mountain climbing or something. Star Trek V is terrible, but I love the idea that they killed God. I always thought, I thought that, that was that interesting. Was so stupid. I thought that was <laughs> beyond moronic, but um, I, I think that movie is indefensibly bad. Um, I mean, that was nine. Come on, killing God when you're nine is at least interesting. I read the um, the Golden Compass. Uh, that's all about killing god because apparently oh interesting it is they kill god at the end of it uh, I'm not... yeah i've read the first one i didn't read the whole series i that's yeah. anyways okay. back to back to back, yeah, to, back to star trek yes but, so you got you got the holy trinity and they represented it in this movie yeah they yeah. did they they went back to it and that just shows you that you know that that simon Pegg and um uh, I always forget his co-writer Doug Jung or, or Young and Justin Lin, the director. Th- they wanted like early on, and Justin Lin was consult because what happened was they. they I think what happened was they, they recast the director and the writers at the same time. Essentially, I think that's right. Yeah, and so it w- even though Lin it, it doesn't get a writing credit and doesn't care about mm-hmm. that stuff. He was talking, you know, multiple times a day with Peg and Young as that was happening, mm-hmm. and they were all such Star Trek nerds. They were, I mean, you know, they were just trying to pack in as many Star Trekisms as they could get away with, right? Um, and I think that really shows. I mean, I, I always say about the first Star Trek reboot, it's so loyal to the things I love about the original cast, at least in terms of the movies, and I love the new cast. I think that's just a transcendent sci-fi movie. However, mm-hmm. if you are a hardcore Star Trek fan, you can tell it was directed not by a hardcore Star Trek fan. Yeah. And I think this movie, you sort of could tell. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm just going to ruin it because we're, we're in spoiler section, right? Mm-hmm. When they did the hyper-fast building of the new Enterprise A... 
Oh, I was yeah. I was I was like jerking off in the theater. I mean, I was like I had the biggest nerdgasm ever, man. Oh my god, I couldn't believe that. I was like, are you kidding me? We're actually seeing this happen on the big screen after all of that. We're gonna see it built from scratch. You know how much thought goes into that? I mean, that's really intense. Yeah, um, I, I mean, yeah. I I won't use language quite that lurid, but I certainly. Oh, you can ask my you can ask my dad. I was like, Dad, I'm, I almost have a boner right now. I don't, <laughs> it, you know. I, I'm just letting you know. Uh, I'm you know, <laughs> kind of turned on by what's going on. I'm hey, I'm just honest, man. Sorry, I'm just honest. It was awesome. The whole end part was awesome. Oh yeah, I I looked at my brother and I was like, they're building the Enterprise A, and it was super cool that they actually did that. I uh, it was really cool. Yeah. That felt like a Martian moment a little bit, you know, like some less like hard. I mean, I know it's not hard science technically, but a lot of science goes into the thinking of this. And this will be an interesting transition, which will be there was way more Trek science stuff here than in the other two reboots combined. Yes. Um, I'm sure this factored into your liking of this movie. Am I, mm-hmm. is, is that a fair assumption? Oh, yeah. And since we're getting into spoilers, I may as well Go. bring it in. Okay, so the... The bad guy, Crawl, played by Idris Elba, not the strongest part of the movie, in my opinion. Um, one of the the hallmarks of him is he's got these remote-controlled ships that are called bees, and they're these little tiny drone-like things that are extremely hard to destroy because there's, like, thousands of them, and he can control them all. And what they then decide is, like real bees, they probably have some way of communicating with each other so that they don't crash into each other and blow everything up. And so what they then decide is, okay, we need to find a way to disrupt that. And they find a way to disrupt it, and it's what helps them win the day. This is a pure Star Trek way of solving a problem, is a vaguely scientific-sounding concept. The word they use is cyberpathic, which I have no idea if that's a real thing. (laughs) I am inclined to doubt it, but it sounds like it could be a thing. And then they describe how it works using a real-world, overly simplified analogy. That is like how 50 different episodes of Star Trek have solved the central question. So that felt to me much more scientific than Red Matter, it felt much more scientific to me than magic con blood or tribal magic or, or, or any of the crap in Into Darkness. Um, and it felt like this is written by somebody who maybe gets how Star Trek works. Um, and as I said in the last one of these, I hope the new show gets back to some of these core Star Trek concepts as a way to differentiate it from other science fiction projects, uh, product that's out there. And hopefully this is a sign – this is the same thing to me, is this is what makes Star Trek unique. And when it's done well, it's not boring. It, it's exciting. And when they do it and they put it in play, um, it's really cool looking. I mean it's a really exciting action sequence when they use this music basically to break the cyberpathic network between all these creatures. Yeah, cyberpathy, as far as I can tell, is like a comic book term or like an old school sure. sci-fi term. Uh, you take two words that mean something and you put them together and it means the new thing. I've, it's fine. It's That's Star Trek. That's what they do. But, you know, it was frustrating for me because it felt so classic Trek. And actually, Justin Lin uh, talks a lot about how they used a very different filter, um, camera filter, uh, uh over this one than either the previous Star Trek movies or Mm -hmm. Fast and Furious. It's way more colorful. It's way more bright. It's way more dimensional. 
Um, you know they're on sets the whole time, but what they do with the background was just spectacular. I thought it totally looked like an alien planet, which they had to sell. You know, mm-hmm. the whole thir- first, the middle third of the movie is this a classic middle third in some ways is the best, even though there's the least action. We always talk about this with these movies, like the, the Gu- Guardians with the middle third. Uh, you know, e- I don't know because the movie sort of has two third acts. There's the confrontation in space. And then That's there's true. the final confrontation in Yorktown. Right. Um, so I think the space sequence is the best. The final space battle is probably the best thing in it. I'm not sure if you want to call that the second act or the third act. When Kirk finally fights Crawl, which happens at the end, that was where I, I was less interested, in part because those two have had so little interaction with each other leading up to this moment that the tension is doesn't necessarily to me it didn't quite feel as earned as some of the yeah, other stuff you knew that was that happening. Was coming. You knew it was coming. Yeah, which is a shame because the the story with Krull is that he was a soldier who got made into a, a spaceship captain. Um, I don't want to say too much more than that, um, just because I don't want to give away everything. Uh, and he resents the people that made him do it for kind of taking away what his you know, how he had defined his life up until then. Okay, so, no, no, I'm glad you pointed to this, because I, I have, I've noticed just about a couple things specifically in this movie, but this is the main one, okay. which is they attempt to bring in the Joss Whedon, the frontier pushing back ideology yeah. through Idris Elba. I mean, I couldn't, I'm, I know everyone thinks I'm obsessed with Whedon, but I'm watching this movie, I c- couldn't help but think about yours and I discussions mm-hmm. about, you know, the, the counter vision of Utopia, Right. Uh, fi- a firefly and this guy was way more violent obviously and way more vengeful i mm-hmm. think they made him human honestly I- I- i'm gonna be really cynical here because okay. the only way to convince idris elba to do this was that he would get to do a really 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 dramatic uh, part or two later in the movie as himself basically they promised him that one monologue and so he uh and, and it was amazing and it was it amazing was, yeah it was good it was really good I mean, it didn't reach the operative level with Serenity, which, you know, again, these Star Trek movies are having an impossible time, but Star Wars does too. I mean, the operative is a rare sci-fi villain. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I like the twist with, with Alba that it was, you know, a former human or whatever. Right. And uh, in both the Lynn and Peg interviews, they attempt to explain the notion behind it, and they just can't. I mean, yeah. they, they came up with a half-baked idea that this guy would be, you know, some sort of force of nature pushing back against the Federation, mm-hmm. and, and that was it, you know? I mean, they didn't even really defend it in the interviews that I listened to. Yeah, and that's kind of my biggest problem with Krull, is there is still a lot about him that isn't explained. Basically, he has something that lets him drain energy, but it's not clear why he stopped looking human. I, I, none of his look and design quite worked for me. The point I was trying to make though, uh, is that there is sort of a parallel of he resents Starfleet for forcing him to give, to give up being a soldier, um, and making him a captain. And Kirk is starting to feel resentment and ennui about being stuck in a chair and wanting something else. So I feel like there's some kind of parallel there. But because those two characters don't start interacting with each other until right before it ends, it doesn't quite carry the weight that I think they they were hoping that it would. I mean, the um, whole movie felt like a Mass Effect mission, honestly. Like, <laughs> yes, the giant did. space station is almost exactly what the Citadel is, which is like 
you know, the, the hub, you know, ridiculously right. huge space station that's the center of their, you know, galactic quadrant or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that turns out to be actually way more mystical and bizarre than they even considered in saving the universe. But it's basically the same thing, where even the biggest starship looks tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did that great. And then, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, you know, crawl the alien, that's a, you know, turn from a human that landed on another planet and then went crazy because of the experience. And, you know, I mean, it's just, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the, um, I don't know. I mean, there just, there wasn't really any ethical or moral issue dealt with the entire time in this movie. You yeah. Know? I mean, it was just all reactive trying to survive and I'm totally fine with that. And it did feel like a classic, uh, Star Trek episode in that sense. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the problem is it's hard to make a character sympathetic when what he wants to do is something indefensible. I mean, even if you resent Starfleet, killing a bunch of innocent people like that is it's it's impossible to identify with this guy because the method by which he goes about achieving his goals isn't is indefensible. You kind of yeah. I, I I was thinking about this the other day. I actually think the best bad guy in the better bad guy in Into Darkness is Peter Weller's character. Sure, um, certainly more than than fake Khan. Oh yeah. Um, we always talk about the dark side of Starfleet, yeah. But his motivations make some measure of sense, and what he tries to do is not directly just awful, 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 you know, whereas this crawl, what he wants to do and how he wants to go about doing it, when your goal is to blow up the universe, nobody can really relate to you. Right, and yeah, and there's no, uh, right, and it's never explained. But, but the bigger thing for me was just the performance. It's it's not his fault with all that makeup, but at least with Nero, there's some, like, delicious, evil hilarity going on there with Eric Bana sure. that he channels. And, and I think this is the curse of the Star Trek franchise, is the first reboot was so much better than it should have been. And that is the, that movie, I think, is where just great, you know, filmmaking in general and great sci-fi filmmaking mm-hmm. collided together at the exact same time with a virtuosic cast, you know, and just yeah. a, a, a brilliant vision of an alternative Star Trek universe. And it's, you know, they just didn't know how to build on, on that, you know. It's, it is episodic, and I appreciate the self-referentialness of Kirk, definitely, with that. Um, I mean, I had heard that line ahead of time, but still, it was, uh, it, it was well-delivered. Um, yeah, I just, I, I can't wait to watch the action on, like, a normal-sized screen where I can process it. So maybe you can talk about it, because it was Fast and Furious, but didn't look like Fast and Furious, even though it was Fast and Furious. Like, what, what was your take on the action, the spinning camera and everything blowing? up and so forth all right there are a few shots that are straight out of uh fast and furious there, oh, okay. there's a specific one where i believe it's scotty his escape pod is falling off of a cliff and he runs out the back of it and jumps and just manages to hang yeah. on there is a scene in fast and furious 7 which he didn't do where the guy leaps from a car flying off a cliff and grabs a spoiler of another person driving her car backwards just to the edge of the cliff that the entire scene felt straight out of fast and furious not and i don't mean that necessarily in a bad way um but to be fair you had you had uh young kirk (laughs) drive the car off the cliff with the with the cliff grab as well right that's true um although the way that particular one was shot, this felt to me more to be just straight up uh, Fast and Furious. And that's mm-hmm. fine. I mean, I didn't really care. Um, but it has all of that kind of 
free flowing shooting style. Um, I mean, we didn't want we didn't get one straight up glance of the ship the entire time. Like whenever yeah. the camera was on the ship, it was moving, which I'm I'm cool with. It was just it was arresting at times. Yeah, go on. Mm-hmm. I I also kind of feel like you know what this ship looks like. They did more, I thought, internal establishing shots because they did change the design of what the bridge looked like, for instance. It looked sleeker. It looked even more kind of translucent. Yeah. Uh, it kind of hyped up the, the blue color scheme. And I actually liked it. I thought the the bridge looked spectacular. Um, they said this was the most of any Star Trek property ever, the mm-hmm. most number of like rooms and hallways they've ever done in a Star Trek property Yeah, before because of how important the evacuation is and how long it takes and so forth. And you need to sell the stakes. There's just not pods, you know, in every single hallway that you have to like go to the escape pods. And so we were watching it get ex- destroyed, but also seeing it for the first time from all new angles. Mm-hmm. I thought it was awesome. I think that's the one thing. If nothing else, J.J. Abrams nails what I would, I, I like uh, about the innards of the Enterprise, if that makes right. sense. Um, again, is this a little bit of technological fetishization? I don't know. But um, he, he just it's more industrial. And again, Dude, they had people flying into space, like a lot of people flying into space, dead. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't understand why movies like Star Trek can get away with it, and the Marvel movies don't even try to kill a single person. Um, that's exactly what would happen with a spaceship being bombarded. Um, okay, so did you? You must have known it was getting blown up, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, did you? Did it un- unfold the way you thought it would? Um, I wasn't entirely sure how it was going to get you know, destroyed, but I, you know, you see the, I knew that the plot was that they crash on a planet and have to survive on the planet, which actually frustrated me for a little while when I found that out because I was like, okay, so the plot is they're on the Enterprise and then you take the Enterprise away from them. That seems kind of cliched, but it was actually very well done. Um, Three times in 13 movies, make your own judgment. (laughs) (laughs) And they threatened to do it in first contact with the Enterprise A. You know. That's true. I mean, the destruction of the Enterprise uh, D in Genesis, in Genesis, in Generations, it didn't need to happen. I don't entirely actually know why they they could Can have I just jump in on this? Yeah, I jump. Massive epic destruction of starships and giant spaceships is fucking awesome <laughs> when it's pulled off correctly. It is, but I didn't and think this... it was very well. Pulled off. I oh, think I thought that was well excellently generation. pulled Ugh. off. They rendered. They claim Justin Lin claims they rendered two hundred and fifty thousand. Oh drone no, ships. I thought it was brilliantly done in this movie. I thought we were still talking about generations. Oh no, no, we're we are definitely not talking about generations. Okay, <laughs> no, no. Here, the us. destruction yeah. is cool. Um, I thought it was amazing. You know, I mean, it, it seems like hundreds of thousands when you're watching, but you're going, "There's no way," you know. Mm-hmm. But they really did it, 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 it and it's brilliant. It, and they talk about. Um, I just took a few notes from the interview. Um, uh, Simon Pegg talks about that the swarm is a metaphor for modern warfare. In terms of insurgents and sort of the decentralized nature of terrorism, I swear to God, Simon Pegg said this. Yeah, I think that might be a little bit of a reach. It was a cool-looking effect. I thought it worked. But they no, but they just talk about the aesthetics of this sort of uh, uh, you know 
um, unquantifiable giant swarm that's all one but separate at the same time. You know? Right. I guess it's like the Borg, right? I mean, yeah, it's like that's a, what a I less thought interesting of the Borg. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, but, but the point is, the writers were trying to go for this stuff. Mm-hmm. And which just shows that the great Star Trek episodes and all the great series, it, it, it makes you appreciate even more how brilliant the best next gen episodes were. You know, yeah. the the best next gen episodes will never be topped by any movie, in my opinion. No, in part because of what I said on the last one of these that this show and what works about it lends itself best to longer form storytelling that you can't do in a movie. You have to do it as a TV show. Yeah, and, and I think that that was the missed opportunity here for me was that you said there's more than three acts. I agree. There's sort of five. You know, There's just the intro and the beginning of the mission and blah, blah, blah. Right. And then acts two and three are on the planet, and then four is the initial space battle, and then five is the second space battle. If you had moved the axe around a little bit, it could have gotten in a little bit more like real political and ethical substance mm-hmm. that w- that would have been interesting to the general audience within the story. You know, it's like they had these threads; they just didn't pull on them. I guess I respect the restraint at two hours and two minutes or whatever it is. Going yeah, I, I I don't know. I, I understand kind of where that interest comes from, but sure. I'm also on some level getting a little bit tired of. Everything that's these that this sort of genre becomes produces becomes some kind of metaphor. Sometimes I don't want something to be a metaphor, and I was actually happy that instead of swinging and possibly missing at something uh, a little bit deeper, they just said, "You know what? For this one, we're just going to make an action movie. It's going to have a sort of personal point about not, uh, you know, not wanting to give up the chair, and and you know, when do you get bored, even." What do you do when you kind of get bored with life, which I think a lot of people who are kind of in their mid-20s have that kind of moment where they're not entirely sure what they're doing with their lives anymore. Yeah, but what's that saying about Jim Kirk is that he's only happy when they're in constant conflict. When yeah. they're in peacetime, he's miserable. Another theme they hint at but don't fully explore. I think they explore it enough. Um, and what oh, I sure. find interesting yeah. is – when the ad, it's the funny. You're, you're arguing. For, wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Matt. I have to interrupt you on this one. I just want to point out that you are, are arguing on the side of less substance, and I'm arguing on those more substance. This never happens. Well, I think <laughs> substance is fine when it's executed well, but if you're not sure, sure. you've got the goods, not even trying. I I respect that. I would rather see something not bother to go deeper if they don't think it's there then pretend what you, or then be misguided enough to think what you're doing is deeper and utterly failing at it that's my biggest not biggest because i have thousands of them one of my complaints about batman v superman is it is not nearly as clever as it thinks it is um and i wish they had not even bothered to try suicide squad <laughs> sorry um, I think that movie's going to be bad. Um, well, see, I actually would be interested in coming on just to talk about the – to do a mini review of the pod – of the trailers released at uh, uh, Comic-Con this uh, week because I certainly have some opinions about all of them. But uh, that's a- I haven't watched almost any of them. I watched like half the Wonder Woman one. That's all I've seen. I can't sit through them. <laughs> <laughs> um. Actually, I'm mostly tracking Rogue One, and as I've been admitting regularly online, it's looking like you're going to be right, which I'm very happy about, if, if that's the case. It looks like they're doubling down on Dark, as I've been saying, on Rogue yep. One, which 
I will be so thrilled if that turns out to be like a legit hard PG thirteen war movie. I, yeah. I, that will give me more respect for Disney than you know than anything since maybe the first Iron Man. I don't know. Um, but anyways, so uh, you know, uh, as I was saying, I, I, I'm cool also with it just being an action movie. But the middle of it was so clearly a character study. You know, yeah. of these characters together at the same time. Well, the There's best little, action movies have some character development. It can't all be plot. Well, you know what? it ended up working for me where you had crazy 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 action and then slow drama stuff like where characters are paired off because when the teamwork sets in when they really have their backs against the wall you know and they're launching this old ship i mean the teamwork is so sold so well in this movie mm-hmm. and that was always the thing with with the three camera shooting of like next gen or ds9 it was like you know one character says this respond this you know the commander says this the lieutenant says this right sub commander says this you know you you frame how that sort of happens and i think they sold that really well i mean even ahura at the very end was like contributing even though she'd done nothing the whole movie because of how they wrote for her which is really upsetting for me Mm -hmm. um yeah i'm gonna go on a little rant here they've misused they've mishandled and misused zoe soldana as ahura because she is ahura I mean, if you ever see her on, on television or just interviewed or her Facebook, I mean, that's her personality. Like, that's Zoe Saldana. She's perky right. and, and full of energy and brilliant and sexy but humble. I mean, that's just who she is. And and to, to not want to embrace that more, I hate to say it, man, just goes to show the sexism of the fucking industry. You know, it's still all about dudes. And that's why they had to introduce Jayla, who really quickly, if, you know, you know, been following all, all the news posts and so forth. They introduced a new female uh, character who is an alien who does look different on a different planet. Uh, she's briefly, you know, maybe you're not sure she's a good guy, ends up being a good guy. Most of the critics like her. Matt didn't like her. I thought she was pretty good. Uh, but she's based on a Jennifer Lawrence portrayal, apparently, according to Simon Pegg in one of her movies. And so they just kept calling her J-Law and then eventually J-La. Yep. Um, so just general, Matt, on the female or lack thereof. And uh, not only that, the fucking evil Admiral's daughter from Into Darkness, who it looked like Kirk was going to hook up with. Yeah, at the end of that, like, why did they keep her? She had great charisma. She yeah. was like a highlight of that movie. Go ahead. And in the show, Carol Marcus produces David Marcus, who is Kirk's son. The oh. only child Kirk ever has is with the character uh, Alice Eve. Oh. I think is that actress's name plays, yeah. and they just sort of throw that in there, and then they never go back to it. Which I was fine with because all she was in the movie to do was to strip, which was terrible. Um, <laughs> no, it was fucked up. I. Your complaint about uh, – or your issues with Uhura, I think one of the reasons it's a problem is because there isn't as much to Uhura's character in the TV yeah. show as anybody thinks. I know, She's, but they, they started changing that in the first reboot, and they just didn't yes, follow up but with the it. Problem is she should be third in command. That's the easiest way to solve this. Uhura should be third should be. in command. But she's not in the show, and so when you have this – Even Troy gets to be third in command. Troy gets uh, to do the crash landing of the, the Enterprise and Generations. <laughs> you know? uh, maybe in that instance. Most of the time, it's Kurt, it's, data, it's yeah. It, yeah, it's it's Picard, Riker, Data. Right. Um, We'd rather and, trust a robot than a woman. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm not. I would maybe rather trust a machine that can do millions of complex comp- calculations. In the time it takes me to tie my shoes, but but, but, how, but how do you solve this problem, man? Like assuming that there are more movies going forward, I, I don't mind creating a new female character 
to handle some of the load and to and to be to provide a, a female character that there really isn't nearly enough of in Star Trek. Voyager came the closest to really creating a lot of really complex, interesting female characters. Um, there is a, a test for media called the Bechtel test that basically, if a show or movie doesn't have at least one scene where a, two women talk about something that isn't a man, it's failed this test. It's kind of become a, a catch-all test for whether a movie is misogynistic or not, mm. which is not entirely fair. But once you start applying the test and see how many movies do fail this pretty basic thing, because okay. there's lots of movies where men talk about something other than a woman, it, you start to see that it, it does have a, at least some validity. Um, so I think Voyager created more of those, more characters. It Most of its episodes did pass this particular test put as much stock into that as you want um i mean I, I, honestly man i, I hate to keep bringing that. this even yeah, though michelle nichols is a, a a fantastic person who sure really was inspiring i mean yeah total she, pioneer yeah you know there i, I think nasa Can has you imagine the hate mail she'd get these days you know i don't probably got it those days she got it those days too i mean yeah. but yeah. i think nasa has said they got the once she became Uhura, uh, NASA started getting a massive uptick in applicants who were women or people of color. Exactly, or and Zoe could be that character. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know who nailed that much more impressively uh, was Jessica Chastain and uh, Kate Mara in The Martian. I think that right. if I was a young girl, I'm watching Jessica Chastain and Kate Mara flying that ship. I'd be like, fucking hell yeah, you know? Sure. And you, well, get, you, but you keep Uhura like, in the skirt and, and not let her do much other than boy stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a little offensive. And they're saying, you know, at least 60% of these audiences are men for the Star Trek movies. You know, right. it, it's not hard to see why not. Um, I, I don't want to harp on it too long. I actually like Jayla. I thought she was quite adorable. Um, but uh, you can go ahead and rant against her if you want. Right. I didn't dislike her. I thought the actress uh, did a good job. I'm certainly willing to see more of her i you know i like the premise of this for, sort of warrior-ish type person joining uh starfleet and seeing how she kind of handles that um in part because we don't really without Worf, which we'll never get you know in this universe unless they start rebooting next gen we don't have that person from a warrior race or a warrior background adapting to this much more regimented but ultimately peaceful and somewhat pacifist. Uh, yeah, honestly, I saw her as way less warlike than Worf and the Klingons. She, she was is, just defending but she's herself. Still closer. My issue with Jayla is that she I opened was, up to them quite quickly once she started trusting them. I thought she did. Um, I thought they had good chemistry to the cast. Yeah, but I, I I don't disagree with anything you've said. My problem with Jayla is just that I've seen that character. Because so we've seen five hundred episodes of Star Trek, man. No, you know it's not just Star Trek. Okay. The, Jayla is Ray from Force Awakens, but paler, just whiter. I mean, think about it. The first scene, both when you meet both of those characters, is them speaking a foreign language. Both use staffs. Both are motivated in part by a sense of loss of parental figures. Both of them live alone. Both of them are no hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat, and are both of them are scavengers. They are the Joseph exact Campbell, character. man. Joseph Campbell, archetype. You've railed against. You've said you hate I know. how much Star Trek 
and I Star agree. Wars overly relies on Campbell. I Campbell yes. Archetype. I'm just pointing out the fact with the character similarities. That's all. I'm not saying I would have done it the same. I just like that actress. Yeah, yeah maybe I would have gone another direction with you know. Uh, with with the makeup or or whatever, but uh, but no, the design I had no problem with. I like that they didn't make it like you know half the movie was her opening up finally to Scotty. Like she opened up to Scotty pretty quickly. She was just you know her weird badass self or whatever. Yeah, I so like she's that like there right. was no romance to any of it. At yes. no point did anybody yes. hit on her. Not even nope. Kirk. Nope. whose whole character They're arc scared. is to try to screw whatever, you know, yeah. any woman that he meets. I mean, that's mostly uh, what he does. Actually, start the, the the reboot Kirk is actually less of a hornball than the original, than the yeah, original Kirk. We except, see it in the Academy, but once he yeah, leaves the, the Academy, Academy, yeah. His opening scene as a grown-up is him flirting with a woman he doesn't even know. I mean... You know, is him flo- uh, flirting with I her. I love so. that scene. That it's might be my favorite scene. scene. But I the point is, scene. Kirk's uh, sexual uh, drive, I, I, libido, whatever you want to call it, is okay. absolutely a key part of his character. Yes. And that he doesn't try it at all. He doesn't even seem to think about trying to hook up yeah. with Jayla. I found fascinating, um, and I think that speaks to character str- a character strength of hers. I'm just saying the way she acts, what distinguishes her, isn't actually all that distinguishing if you compare her with other female lead characters that we've sure. seen in genre films. We saw it with Ray. We've seen it with Katniss Everdeen was not you know the character that made Jennifer Lawrence the inspiration for Jayla right. famous. It's the same thing. It's she acts the same as Katniss. Does. No, it wasn't that movie. It wasn't that movie. It was the one. Whether before. it is or it isn't, she could very much have been a character in Hunger Games if she just had less war paint on. Um, right, but she but she basically was a, a central part of like one of five or six acts in the movie. You know, like we just was. don't see that much. And I didn't uh, mind her place in the narrative. And as I repeat, I want to see more of her character and how she deals with being in an environment that isn't conducive to her natural set of skills. You know, she's a person who, like Ray, is hyper-capable, yeah. whatever the hell that word means. I'm still not convinced it actually yeah. is a word, um, but it's one that yeah. came out when Just Ray... Just means really smart. <laughs> yeah, I'm, but, it, but why that's a criticism, I don't get, whatever. Uh. But she and Ray both stri- come across as people who already have all of the skills they need to solve every problem they're ever going to encounter. So let's put Jayla in a scenario and an environment totally alien to her, pun sort of intended, like Starfleet, and see how she handles it. I'm excited to see that. Um, but I just it's, – it's, I'm sorry. I'm just pissed that it got to this place with Zoe Saldana because I remember seeing the original reboot in the theater – and I know the timing of this scene because I did an audio commentary for that movie um, that has actually done quite well. Thank you, Bizzlecast listeners. That's one of my most popular commentaries. It's my personal favorite. Bizzlecast 20, I believe, the Star Trek reboot. Um, at exactly halfway through the movie, like an hour, hour 15 in the movie, is the scene where Vulcan's destroyed and Zoe Saldana and Zachary Quinto are in the, um, uh, are in the turbo lift. And she just she touches him on the face. She's like, what can I do? I'm so sorry. Right. I mean, and, and I, I remember just like tearing up and being like, when was the last time I teared up in a fucking, you know, movie like this before? I was yeah. already in on the movie and you had the emotional stakes. It was like, it was just, 
Well, let me let me put it this way. I don't know where I can put Beyond compared to The Force Awakens, which I need to rewatch, and I also need to rewatch Beyond. But to me, the original Star Trek reboot is still the best of the three reboot movies and Star Wars. Force Awakens. I don't know if you agree with that. Um, <sighs> it's hard to say. In terms of personal reaction, yeah, I would probably say just because. As much as I love Star Wars, I have always been a Star Trek fan first and probably always will be. So to I just get... think it's a better movie. I think J.J. Abrams made a better movie in 2009 than in Star Wars in 2015. That's, that's my thesis. Probably. Um, I think – I don't know. I think it helped him that he wasn't a fanboy actually in that case, that he came with a fresh perspective. Whereas Star Wars, he's such a fanboy. It's like too much fan service almost. Yeah, but he brought his sort of bag of tricks, his personal shooting style um, to Star Trek in a way that with Star Wars, he was a little bit more reserved. We talked about the lack of lens flares but as just a joke. But as a general thing, mm. he's got this filmmaking style that he calls the mystery box. It's That's what Lost is. It's to an extent. Mm. He did Alias, sexual. didn't he? I believe he did do Alias. Yeah. Okay, and it's what Cloverfield is. This idea of he'll throw yeah. you into this thing. The new one's supposed to be good. I've heard it's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, Clover- John Goodman is almost always spectacular. So, I mean, and I like yeah, um, he's Mary Walter Elizabeth. Subcheck. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Shomer fucking Chavez. Oh, um, oh, we've never talked Big Lebowski before. I mean, oh, we dude. need to talk about it. It's kind of it's it's no, we don't need to talk about it's it now. Perfect I'm just film. I'm just saying, me and you, I can't believe we've never traded Big Because me and Smiley and Andres and those guys, we're writing Big Lebowski, you know, strikes and gutters, you know, ins and outs, right. what have you. <laughs> um, and uh, at the time, like this, a, Not like a yeah. movie about bowling and smoking pot, <laughs> and yeah. that's it pretty much. Um, that's all uh, that happens in that movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, there, no, there's but no real J.J. Abrams' mystery box idea is yes. he's going to throw you into this world and tease sounds. out or just not reveal outright a lot of the key components of what makes the world work and just kind of leave you to suss it out. And that is very much Star Trek. It is, you know, with all of this kind of red matter feels like it's this thing we don't understand. The idea of a ship coming through the void as this unknowable thing, what I call, I've called Lovecraftian in its aesthetic very much feels like it's part of his, his mystery box approach and I thought he stripped some of that out of Force Awakens and just kind of presented this world without self-congratulating himself quite so much on being mysterious. Um, so I don't know uh, which, I th- which I thought was better executed. I probably yeah. would say I liked for, uh, Star Trek 08 more just because I like Star okay. Trek more. And the bad taste in my mouth from Nemesis – and the Andrew overall Fry. casting, the overall casting of 09 reboot was better than Force Awakens. I thought. Yeah, Force Awakens has the four great casts, and Boyega, Ridley, Driver, and uh, um, Oscar Isaac were all fantastic. And but Harrison there's Ford's like nine brilliant castings in Star Trek. Yeah. Exactly. Um, we should mention, by the way, uh, in Star Trek Beyond, Anton Yelchin is in it. It's kind of a bummer. Some people have said that his presence just sort of overwhelms. I didn't think he was nearly no. as big a part of this plot 
as p- other people did. No, it's I never been his him. character. Yeah, that's never been his character. He played it to a T. Again, he's yeah. not supposed to be. I, one I actually of the thought main he had characters. more to do in Into Darkness. Here, he's just sure. sort of standing around. I think he tells the captain once that something will work. So well, literally, all he's doing is agreeing with somebody else. There is something subtle about you know young Chekhov still having such enthusiasm. While sure. Kirk is kind of apathetic, but or, I feel like they didn't uh, explore that nearly as much as they no. should have, considering those. But two they did tease it. I, I do think they teased it. I, I could be reading too far into it. It I might have gone left it. on the cutting room floor. Yep. You know that kind of stuff happens. But it would seem to me that if you're trying to get the most optimistic, enthusiastic person and the most jaded verge of quitting person together you would think they would interact with each other a little bit more about that dynamic instead right. of how do we get this old ship working, yeah. which is fine. But I, that was, I thought, the conflict that really would have been fascinating If is whether or not it's Chekhov that is the one who really inspires Kirk to get back in the saddle. As it is, I'm not entirely sure I was satisfied with why he decides to not you know, give up the chair in the end. Um, by the way, the uh, mm. admiral that he talks to on the yes. ship, not Greg, yes. Rutherford, the woman, yes. she is, uh, uh, she is currently in a sci-fi show called The Expanse. Um, which She's famous. Is, She's been in a million things. She may have been. She, that was yeah. the first time I'd ever seen her character. Oh, no, I'd seen her before. I, What's the show? The Expanse. It's based off a series of, of novels. Um, basically... The humans have expanded into the solar system, but not beyond that. And basically, you have this you have Earth that's really well developed, Mars that's really well developed to the point that they resent the Earthers. So there's basically a cold war between them. There's a fair amount of racism. And then you have the people who grow up mining asteroids in the Jupiter area for water, for mineral, et cetera, known as belters because they work in the asteroid belts, <laughs> who basically become their own species because they grow up in a null gravity situation and they're just shat on by the Martians and the uh, the Terrans, the Earthers, whatever they're called. Um, and it's all about political conflict. In the show, Thomas Jane is in it and he's very Thomas Janey, so I, I enjoy watching it. Mm. She plays an ambassador investigating this attack on a Earth ship and then another attack by seemingly the same forces on a Martian ship. So they're trying to figure out is somebody trying to start a war between us or what? Um, I don't know what the actress's name is. I have always assumed she is either Indian or Pakistani or uh, of descent of those. Um, but she's very good in that show. Uh, and she that when I saw her in Star Trek Beyond, that was the first thing I thought of. Uh, All right. So here's my big question to you, buddy. Yep. Which is, we've, uh, we've talked about this a lot in our various podcasts, con- contrasting <laughs> Star Wars to Star Trek and what it means. I don't know if I sent you that article in the last month or two about uh, it was an op-ed written by a former Marine um, in Iraq who yeah, talks about, about the, uh, they like watching the romanticization of violence yeah. or something like that. I did read that. Right. That was very powerful. Yeah. I want to answer really quickly, by the way. That actress, her name is oh, yeah. Shoret. Agdashlu, and I apologize if I got that wrong. She's Iranian. Okay, so I was completely off about that. She's Iranian-American. Uh, oh, interesting. She's really good. 
Um, she's been acting for a hell of a long time, um, but it was cool seeing her show up. Oh, she was um, she does Mass Effect voices. That's why I recognized her. Quite possibly. fucking that. You know, I'm looking at her right now. She's, that oh wow, um, that's crazy how that works. Uh, I was like, I recognize her. I guess I just recognized her voice. Um, but Apparently she was in X Men: The Last Stand. Okay, we're not going there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I really think, excuse me, I really think that Star Wars is the message that people want to hear versus Star Trek. Uh, Star Wars is a populist message, and Star Trek is kind of an elitist message. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd agree. And I think that applies to both Democrats and Republicans. You know, I have tons of friends that won't see any big budget movie, but they'll see Star Wars movies. You know what I mean? Like it's it's in the culture that deeply. So can Star Trek survive? You know, with with I mean, Star Wars being a, 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 at least an annual fact of life for the next however many years. I'm not really sure it can. Maybe it's back on TV as we've talked about. Go ahead. Uh, I, I think it will. It depends what we define as survive. Do I think we're ever going to see a movie, a Star Trek movie, make $2 billion? No. I'm not even sure we're ever going to get a billion-dollar Star Trek movie. But we're also not going to ever get Star Trek movies at the rate of production that Disney spits out Star Wars products because uh, who who runs Star Trek? Who owns that property now? Is it uh, – I'm not even – Paramount. Viacom. Yeah, okay. So I I don't think they ever envisioned doing it that way. If we only get a Star Trek movie every three or four years, um, that's enough. Especially if the Star Trek Discovery, which is the name of the show that's going on CBS All Access, if it turns out to be good, if it turns out to be a success, I don't know what there's – how many people got to watch it for it to be considered a success in that medium – um, but I if think that you were, I think you were onto it about and just enough people to justify doing a network show, right? At least trying it out. But if we can get a movie every three or four years and a TV show, a big, you know, a prime time network TV show that you don't have to pay an extra six freaking dollars a month to watch, um, to me that's enough because I think yes, the the populism versus the elitism of the two. All of that is true, but I think that means that there's always going to be a, a portion of people who reject Star Wars and just – they want some other vision of the future that is as well fleshed out as Star Wars is but just is a different perspective on it where everything isn't everybody going to war all the time, where everything is kept up in a sort of new clean state as opposed to constantly decaying and becoming older and more broken and more stitched together, which is basically the arc of the Star Wars movies if you take them chronologically. Sure. You know, I, I think the counter visual of Star Trek is always going to be appealing enough that people will try to do something with it. Um, I, I suppose. No. I just, I, I think, you know, America really wants to see itself as the plucky rebels, even though they're the Empire. And there's sure. just something really appealing about that, whereas Star Trek is admitting that we're the Empire and seeing where that would go. Well, it's a way a more mature empire. vision, but I'm just not sure people want a lot of that. And that's why they make these movies so action-y. I mean, you take the ridiculous action out of the three Star Trek reboot movies and they're, you know, okay, right? I mean... Right. Well, if you take the action out of Star Trek Beyond, there's very, very little to it. I mean, by design. I mean, I've said I like this movie 
because it doesn't swing and miss trying to impose some political allegory onto it the way, for example, Enterprise did in its third season where they're attacking, hunting the Zindi in what is just an extended allegory about September 11th and our actions overseas. And they fail at it. I'm glad that Star Trek Beyond just decided to skip all that and just have these people blow each other up for two hours and, and <laughs> run around and fight. And I thought that yep. was great. Um, yeah. I mean, you're, I th- you're, you're not going to like this comparison, but for me, uh, this movie is like the Ultron to the original Avengers. I like what was so great about the first Star Trek reboot, like the first Avengers that we did our commentary for, was that there's this tenseness the whole time, you know, and, and there's not long acts of either action or no action. It breaks out, you know, chaotically and, mm-hmm. you know, there's this just like uncontrollable, you know, energy. You never know when things are going to be common, when things go crazy. Whereas this was broken down very specifically into like character acts and action acts, which you can do easily with Age of Ultron, whether you like it or not, is break down those acts. I mean, they're completely separate. So it's still a great accomplishment. Um, I don't know. I think it did benefit from not being directed by JJ, obviously. Uh, I think so, too. Yeah. Um, I, 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 actually, you know what? Let's talk about Justin Lin a little bit. I loved his direction of this movie. I know it seems like I've sound super critical. I really liked it. I, lo- I really liked his direction. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I, I thought he did a good job with it. I, I thought the way it was shot, it captured a lot of the dynamic qualities that Abrams brings to most of his shooting that he brought right. clearly to the the first Star Trek reboot especially and definitely Force Awakens where everything was moving and you know it, it feels fun and it feels lively. Um, and what I don't think people like about Star Trek is that it's kind of static. It's sitting around on a bridge relaying orders. I can understand why people would get a little bit sick of that. Um, and I think this movie is proof that you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have a fun, action-y, blockbuster-y thing that also has scientific nonsense solving the problem in the end. Um, you can have both. You don't have to sacrifice one for the other. So let's bring it all around here. So does this movie do anything for the television property back to Star Trek? I mean, like anything at all? Or it's just a blip on the radar? I think it's a blip on the radar. Yeah, if they're smart, they'll time the release of something. I, I'm going to guess the DVD or I don't even know if they do DVDs anymore, but the digital media will become available much sooner. But if there's something to release right before the TV show starts up as a tie in, right. um, just cause they're going to have to do something to drum up interest in this. Um, especially if it's not coming out until, did you say it was 2018? It's going to debut or 2017. Um, no, like January. This January. Yeah. Okay, so then, yeah, it would be right about the time that we would start seeing director's cuts and whatever uh, of this movie. And if they're smart, they'll time it so that they do that to get Star Trek back in everybody's conscious. Uh, You know, because by that point, we'll have gotten the next Thor and we'll be starting to think about Star Wars. So we're not going to be thinking about Star Trek anymore. So if they're smart, they'll time the release. of the TV show and the DVDs or what, or whatever side by side. So we start thinking about star Trek again and maybe there's some carryover. Um, but I don't get the sense the TV show is going to be based in this. It's called the Kelvin timeline because the timeline diverges where the Kelvin is blown mm. up. Um, 
but as I understand it, the prime, the prime, and the alternate. Yeah. I I I thought somebody at Paramount or whatever called it Kelvin timeline, but as I understand it, the new show is in the old timeline. So. I yes. Mean, that, yes. Yes. You pointed out. Yes, the original timeline. So great, um, but I, I I don't know. I to get people to think about Star Trek again, I think they're going to have to do something to ramp up the marketing. And the easiest thing would be to make people remember. Remember that summer movie you liked that was yeah. arguably the second best summer blockbuster of this of this season, because really. Uh, we didn't get to this, but it needs to be mentioned. Yeah. This has not been a great summer for movies. The best horrible summer. I'm so glad you brought this up. Oh my God. I was looking at this while we were waiting for the movie to start. Um, the best uh, was civil captain America, civil war. Dude, only, only seven movies this year Mm -hmm. have made over $150 million domestically. Seven. And you probably know all of them because they're all Disney movies, either for kids or captain America, BVS, Oh, so Deadpool and one one or two others. Yeah, and fi- I'm assuming Finding Dory, Finding made a Dory, lot of, made several hundred million. Jungle Book, yeah, uh, a- a Zootopia. Those are those right. are the top six, top seven. After and that, it's a huge drop off. But and the crazy part is of the of the people after the drop off, Warcraft actually made more money than any of those movies because of their foreign distribution. But like right. Tarzan's a disaster. Independence Day is a disaster. You know, I mean the the Alice in Wonderland sequel was a disaster. Apocalypse. Uh, which Apocalypse was a liked, disaster. Oh no, 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 no! It was a disaster. I, I'm, I'm not deluded. I happen to enjoy the movie, but it, overall, it was a disaster it, it, because of the potential of what it could have been and, and how badly they failed to reach it. Um, you know, Captain America wasn't a disaster, obviously, but some people thought it would go Avengers territory, and it didn't even hit Iron Man three. What's that say? I don't know. I mean, it's a five hundred million dollar difference, a fifty million. I think it was an unqualified success, and I think it was a very good movie. But as a friend of mine pointed out, I had trouble enjoying the very good movie because I kept waiting for the best Marvel movie ever made to start. Yeah. Um, so I think in some I ways, know, Star Trek maybe set slightly lower expectations and maybe achieved them better than uh, Civil War achieved the insane expectations that they intentionally created for themselves for reasons I still don't entirely understand. I'm um, just so disoriented because of all of these mediocre and worse movies. I went right. tonight, man. I didn't even tell you because I wanted to bring it up at the podcast. I saw Jason Bourne tonight with my dad. I heard it was boring. And uh, and I don't like any of the Bourne movies, so I was never. I don't love. I don't love the Bourne movies. I I definitely like them more than you. I know you're not. You're not into the spy thriller, but it was shot really well. There wasn't a single noticeable CGI shot the whole movie. It was all practical effects. It's the Mad Uh Max thing. You know what I mean? Like right. You know, I see all these special effects, and then you just see you know people plowing through cars or whatever. Uh, but it, it was exciting. It was really well filmed. Greengrass definitely knows what he's doing. But uh, but you know, normally this wouldn't even be you know on my radar. You know, like I just there's just nothing. I, I can't even force myself to see these bad. I mean, yeah. you know, you couldn't pay me enough to see Independence Day. Yeah. I'm so interested. So I was talking to my dad about this. It'll be a good way to wrap up, which is that I'm really interested at the end of the summer to see mm-hmm. what the summer receipts were compared to past years because usually you at least have a Jurassic Park or Fast and the Furious. Right. You, you have none of that this summer. Yeah, I think Dory and Civil War are going to buoy it up a fair amount. But there, that's really going to be it. We'll see what Star Trek does. I think it's going to be okay. 
Um, the one that I never, I haven't seen that I kind of want to see just because I don't th- think I can have an opinion about it until I do is Ghostbusters. But uh, I hear it's, it's a, great. I've I've heard some people who really love it, some people who don't like it, but don't like it for legit reasons. And then there are all the people that I I really don't want to be even accidentally affiliated with who don't like it for terrible, stupid, immature reasons. Oh yeah. Um, I'll go forever. You know, and so I, I'd be willing to pay money just to make it that, you know, 10 bucks more successful sure. to shut them up. But yeah. I haven't seen it yet in part cause I don't have anybody to see it with. Um, as a general rule, you brought in earlier, uh, when you introduced me that I'm more skeptical than you are. Some of it is purely a cost thing. If movies cost 10 bucks instead of 15 bucks to see, or eight bucks, I'd probably be more forgiving. But fifteen dollars is a lot to pay for a movie that isn't really good. And after Batman v Superman, I am really reluctant to see something that I don't, I'm not really confident I'm going to enjoy. Which is why I skipped Apocalypse, and why I haven't seen Ghostbusters yet. And there's a good chance I won't wind up seeing it because I'm not, I was, I was never that excited for it in the first place. I have, and I'm having a hard time believing it's going to blow me away. I'm not going to say it. I'm I'm just passing on what I've heard that it's pretty you know funny at least I I I I maybe will watch it on TV down the road I'm not nearly as I mean the fact that there are psychotic Ghostbusters fans just shows how far we've fallen as a society <laughs> I mean it, this Star Wars is one thing you can see why there'd be a cult around Star Wars but Ghostbusters. Right. Bill Murray. The first Ghostbusters is amazing. It's an amazing it's ama- movie. But it's not a spiritual thing like the fucking The Force. It's fucking goo and ectoplasm and shit. Eh, People taking all themselves kind of, way too seriously. It's ridiculous. Of, of that, I we are in complete accord. But people take themselves too seriously with Star Trek and Star Wars, too. I mean, I was listening to a podcast today where the guy pointed out, look, if you miss... Star Trek as it was in the original series, get Netflix and go watch Star Trek the original series. And right. he's got a point. Um, mm, yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I, I'm excited for my second watching. Uh, honestly, most movies that I, I consider like really good are just ones I like a lot. Often it's the second viewing uh, that locks it in for me because I always have such high expectations and I'm trying to process everything the first time. Like Guardians, I thought was good not great when i first saw it and but on my second viewing like a week later i was like holy shit this is amazing (laughs) which brings me to my next and maybe final point which is that we're talking about problems with women in science fiction Mm -hmm. but starting um this december going through next december we have felicity jones as the lead star of a star wars movie yep we have Zoe Saldana confirmed as the co-lead of the next Guardians of the Galaxy film with Chris Pratt. Whatever that means. It means she's going to get more time and it's not going to be Chris Pratt the whole time. Every time. And, whatever. Keep going. Yeah, you're so, you're so skeptical about her. It makes me uh, I'm not, It's not her. It, it's marketing terms that don't bear out. We thought – uh, what's her no, face? No, no, that's just what the directors – I mean that's just what – that's what Gunn – that's what Gunn said. I just – you know. Yeah. Gunn says there's going to be a lot of Zoe. I'm good. There's a lot of Zoe. Point being, she's still Gamora in Guardians of the fucking Galaxy. Right. And then you have Rey next, you know, next Christmas. Mm-hmm. So the three biggest sci-fi properties in a one-year period are all going to lead star or co-star major female characters. And we're Which, getting Tilda yeah. Swinton and Doctor Strange. Yes. 
That's a good point. Yeah, I, I, I've been uh, off. Although the that's this, is that this November or next November? No, now it's I'm, this. It's this one. They're releasing tons of shit. Okay, I've been, so what's dude, next November? Yeah. Is that Thor? So yeah, we we'll get next, next November Thor. Oh yeah, yeah. Tess Thompson and Kate Blanchett. Right. Um, yeah, I actually think the Thor movie could end up being the best. I never thought I would be saying this, but when you see Hunt for the Wilder People by Taika Waititi, yeah, I've from heard that's New, really delightful. New Zealand. And you just, it's delightful, but it's really adult at the same time. Mm-hmm. And his sense of humor is just perfect for Hemsworth and, and Hailston and those guys. I mean, I could, to- I, I, you wouldn't think it just seeing the movies because they're completely different. You know, it's, this one's about like mere mortals barely surviving as opposed to, you know, way more than a mere mortal. But, right. um, and just the cast. And the fact that I think, you know, Hemsworth wants to make his mark the same way Evans did mm-hmm. with, the, with the final movie. If you, you know, I, I think actually Hemsworth's going to get more screen time than Evans had because he's not going to have a Robert Downey Jr. Um, taking scenes away from him would be my guess. Yeah, and Mark Ruffalo was never quite the, the box draw, office draw that Chris Hemsworth is. So, And for practical reasons, they can't do a lot of Hulk stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how much he will or I, I i don't know i'm i'm curious to see it i'm certain i will see it um i think we're gonna see a lot of hulk stuff i hope so i mean they, they've been teasing photos of him in the planet hulk armor which you called that i didn't believe Ew. so this is one of those cases where i admit you were right thank just you just like when <laughs> just like when rogue one turns out to be good you will admit i'm right Matt, and Matt, like i'm sorry I, I, becomes the leader of the defenders okay, right, will admit right, that right, i'm yeah. right right you know. sure um Here's the thing. The fact that I'm right, it makes me incredibly embarrassed. I wish I was wrong. <laughs> the fact that I knew enough to guess that that might be a possibility. Um, although, to be fair, to be fair, the idea in my head of those two together came before I knew Planet Hulk existed. And then I learned yeah. about Planet Hulk, and I was like, oh, yeah, they could take down entire fucking planets. That would be... Exactly. Dude, people would pay a billion dollars to go see that. But the question I think really they'll is, pay eight hundred fifty million, nine hundred million, maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure if uh, Ragnarok is going to crack a billion. I, I have a hard time believing that. But okay, so to wrap on Star Trek here, so yeah. you know, it's going to be like the X Men. It's going to make like 150 here, and then we have no idea how much it's going to make overseas. But each one has dropped off domestically, gone up internationally. I think best case scenario for them is like 550 million, which is what Into Darkness was. So, question is, with great ratings and what seemed to be a growingly popular franchise, right? You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're both going to always err on giving these properties chances in the future. Sure, I will always give Star Trek a chance. Yeah, so it's, it's just a fun episode in, in the series, and they're going to be just going through the same battles the next few years to make this series uh, ma- uh, maintain its relevance. Yeah, I, I mean, I but that's that's what Star Trek's problem has always been is True. when you are a utopian vision of the future, how do you square that with a reality that doesn't seem to take steps to get you there? You know, we have a lot of the same technology that we think could be precursors to what we see in star trek we have portable scanning devices and portable communications devices and we even sort of are starting to experiment with building warp fields which minor thing that i really liked in beyond 
the way they depicted the ship at warp where the screen was mostly black, but there was a bubble around the ship that was moving at faster than light speed. I thought that was really cool and probably closer to what warp actually would be if we could achieve it because what every engineer who's ever been interviewed about this has said is you can't go faster than the speed of light, but you could create a bubble of warped space around an object conceivably that would effectively move you faster through space than the speed of light. But it's not because you're actually generating enough propulsion to go that fast. It's because you're bending space around you. And so the visual of the Enterprise at warp, where it's like the universe is bending and melting around the hull of the ship. I loved it. I thought that was, was the best. Really cool. I thought that was the best warp speed, hyperspeed, you know, hyperspace effect. Yeah. yeah. I that was totally Like awesome. in a yeah. darkness, it's just that blue, white, flashy hyperspace, Doctor Who time, continu- you know, tunnel effect. This I thought was different maybe actually a little bit more quote-unquote realistic uh, and certainly visually different than I've ever seen Warp depicted before. Okay, so they haven't done the obvious thing, which is do in the like very near future, like one generation after Zephyr and Cochran, yeah. or the far future and just jump to the 29th century. I when think... they're not just flying around on starships. That would be sure. very difficult to realize. The near future one would be awesome. It'd be like the Martian. Get people pumped up for the space program, right? Like, I don't know why they don't consider those. Go ahead. Well, they tried that with Enterprise. Enterprise is no, one but generation. Be even more, well, but yeah, but that's There's true. almost nothing. There's almost no time difference between the end of the arrival of the Vulcans when they meet Cochrane and when we get to Enterprise. I think we're talking 15 years tops. Um, so I don't know how much more time. Wait, that shitty ship that barely hits warp one 15 years later is the Enterprise? Yeah, not 15, but 20 or 30. There isn't enough things that happen between Cochrane's first warp flight and the start of Enterprise that you could really have a show in between. And the problem with a far future one is how do you do it in such a way that it still feels like Star Trek in anything but name only. Now Voyager does start to experiment later on where basically Starfleet has expanded to start policing time and time travel and be a peacekeeping time traveling th- thing. It's not great, but they get into the idea no, of I, I saw a couple of prime episodes. directives. So if yeah. they can't time travel, you don't talk to them. Right. It's kind of cool. It is a natural outcropping considering space and time are tied together that once we master space we would then want to master time so what defines star trek that's a great question what makes something star trek just the badge on 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 the well the visual aesthetic is certainly part of it part of it is definitely an approach to problem solving that's scientific and the idea of a society based around science um and also a society that transcends a lot of modern foibles of society you know star trek next generation i didn't realize this as a kid they spend a lot of time actually talking about how we're so much better because we're not bound by money and jobs anymore like there are a lot of moments where they crap on the 20th century's culture in star trek next generation more than i picked up on at the time but it's there enough that clearly roddenberry envisioned the future as something that would look back on the 20th and 21st century and laugh a little bit or, or have disdain towards us, which is probably why some people don't like Star Trek who, you know, who are around today. 
Um, we joked about Donald Trump would not be a Star Trek fan. <laughs> yeah. It's not an unfair thought because he does represent in a lot of ways a lot of the aspects of this society that Star Trek would go on to kind of crap on. Capitalism, commercialism, uh, narcissism, and kind of a, a, the idea of selling yourself as a brand. All of these are themes that Star Trek The Next Generation acknowledges and kind of craps on as uh, you know archaic – rudimentary primitive um and that they're so much better because they've evolved beyond it and so i you know i just think the the closer we get to you know the singularity or whatever you want to call it like the closer we get to that major choice that major change in society (laughs) and technology and so forth the more anxiety people are going to feel and it's interesting to think whether it's more profitable to continue these, you know, medium future visions, as I call them, 500 years in the future when we've got really direct technological threats in front of us now. Right. It, you know, in ways that cyberpunk and such genres deal with way more head on, you know, ghost in the shell type stuff, you know, because like that's that's where we are now. So it's like in some ways it's getting hard in my head to even imagine these utopian far futures because I don't know where things are going now, but but <laughs> I'm not saying I want every sci-fi movie to be a minority report. It's it's a tough balance, you know. Um, I don't. It know. is. You, you talk about you know what I'm saying about the anxiety of of the the technological stuff to come, kind of you know. Sure, I mean I don't know how exactly you deal with that with Star Trek, in part because we've talked about how Star I, Trek. I'm widening. Kind of, I'm widening the. I'm widening the, the, the. It could be Star Trek. Could be just sci-fi in general. The, like the problem with the idea uh, with setting stuff too far in the future uh, in TV. I mean, the Foundation books and the Dune books take place over thousands of years after the okay. present day. And many basically. other series as well. Yeah. I th- what is it? Dune is like thirty thousand or something. Dune is and I th- thirty thousand. They're both. And like Foundation, 30, I think, yeah. by the end of it, they're at like ten thousand AD or something like that. Mm, like, yeah, maybe also. Beyond millennia in the future the problem with tv and in comics the um the legion of superheroes my favorite comic series is set in the 30th and 31st century um and it is directly kind of what the dc universe becomes a thousand years after people like superman and batman and the flash kind of inspire start inspiring the world to to inspiring them to to be better um but when it comes to, I think, movies and stuff that really relies on visuals, if you go too far in the future, you risk creating something that is so visually different than what we have today that you lose the ability to put yourself there, that you and disconnect. that is why I constantly fail to read full series based on those universes for the exact reason you just said. It's just completely unrelatable, and there's so much description. It's just it's oppressive. That, but that's what Asimov pulled off. That I don't know why other authors can't. I mean, Scalzi does it. Well, pretty Asimov well. is one of the best science and science fiction writers there's ever been. Apparently, he's kind of a yeah. jerk in real life. But well, that's whatever. Who cares? Fuck. Care. <laughs> I hope he was a <laughs> My jerk. My parents Fuck met him once, and he was a jerk to them. So oh, I. I'm sorry. But whatever. He's a fantastic writer. The point um, being, he didn't he didn't need to talk too much about technology to make it feel like the far future and like. Like futurist, you know, sci-fi writers today do feel like they have to do that. Yeah, it's it's an over reliance on on quote unquote world building. Um, that they even the the great old ones, and Frank Herbert puts a shit ton of time into world building 
Arrakis and all of that, but it's still, it doesn't quite feel like as obligatory as some modern uh, sci-fi writers do. Yeah. I'm reading uh, Old Man's War and I'm loving it. Uh, it was Jeff from Jesse. Uh, and one of the things I like is that they kind of tease out what this larger world they exist in. They have a thing called right. Skip Drive, which is their rapid transit technology. You know, it's their warp drive, their FTL drive. They'd spend a couple of pages here and there explaining how it works. Most of the time, Scalzi's just like, we have this thing. It gets us where we need to go to have yeah. the scene that I want to write. That's it. That less is more approach. So much better. Amateur writers don't know, don't understand how that you, works. You, you sent me uh, a screenshot from the book. Right. And you said, this is one of the best things I've ever written in a sci-fi book. And it was just a bunch of dialogue of them giving like like right like rude names to their yeah. uh th- for people who haven't known part of the book i'm not going to spoil everything there's this thing called a brain pal it's a computer implant in your brain it can download information it can send messages it can play videos store memory etc and it has a voice and then eventually a telepathic interface and you can name yours whatever you want so they're all talking and one of them says what did you name yours and and it's like asshole dipshit shithead fuckhead one of them names it satan <laughs> uh, i love when sci-fi writers curse especially productively like that yeah, is really good at cursing there's a lot of swearing in red shirts and it's very well done as well um i mean you it's nailed about- it you i'm sorry no go ahead no, go ahead. You, no, I, no, I was just going to say that you, you, you nailed it with Scalzi, the point I was getting to about, you know, use as little tech, tech as possible. So when you do it, it's cool, but it's focus on the dialogue, focus on the characters, focus on the plot. You know what I mean? Like, that's way more successful formula. And, and uh, to its credit, I think Star Trek Beyond achieved that for the most part, um, e- even as flashy as some of its action scenes were. Well, that's what I think Star Trek has done is whether it has too many of these or too few is irrelevant. There is a specific set of technologies that's in Star Trek, and that's pretty much it. You have warp drive, transporters, replicators, phasers, and that's pretty much, and tricorders, and, and basically, and some weapons. That's it. There's nothing else that's introduced or taken away in all of the Star Trek shows or movies that doesn't kind of fall into those broad categories. And that's all there is. And I think that show exists in the sweet spot of futuristic vision enough that it's something that we kind of want to fantasize about, escape into, but not so far in the future that we can't still relate, that we can't still recognize which problems we have today have survived through 500 years of evolution and technological advancement, Mm. even as we've let other ones go. So if you go another 500 years in the future, everything is either so far advanced we can't relate or it's starting to crumble and decay and it's fall of the Roman Empire. And But that's not as much fun to watch as to see this show at the heyday of this civilization. And you get the sense Next Gen to me is like the greatest moment in Federation history. It's certainly better as a universe than it was right. in Classic Trek. And I kind of always got the sense that it would eventually start to crumble and fall apart and or they would become instead of a, a one galaxy it would be many galaxies, some kind of allied galact- multi-galactic thing just because that's how a civilization would evolve. So why, not, would, why not split the difference and do the new Star Trek series in like the 27th century or something like that when that they I did split I can't tell up. you. 
I, I think that is just because if you set it, what is it? It's between. It's after Star Trek Six, isn't like it's after oh, the, the kid actual series. Is, right, it's after Six before Next Gen. Yeah. Right. So I think some of that is if you set it in the timeline at a time that already exists, you can make reference to stuff people already know. You can talk about Klingons and the Kitimer Accords, and you can talk about the entire plot of Star Trek Six and mention Kirk and Spock and Bones and all those people all you want. You could conceivably bring one of them on. I don't know how you'd do it, but you could if you wanted to. Um, you know, you could have old George Takei show up as older Sulu because he's already pretty old by the time you get to... Um, and gay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's its own thing. I don't want to get into that. I think George Takei is right. I think John Cho is right. I think they're all right and I wrong. I agree. I agree. They're all right. Yeah, there's no wrong there. That's, you know, I'm not different gonna, opinions. Yeah, I'm not going to tell a gay man he's wrong to be bothered by making a character who was straight gay. If it bothers him, I'm pretty sure his perspective and his life experience trumps mine in that matter. So sure. he's probably right. But the arguments the other guys are making are is right as well. And to be fair, there just needs both to be more gay Star yeah. Trek characters. It's the most. Yes underrepresented yep. minority for lack of a better word of any there's plenty of black people in star trek lots of women yeah. plenty of asian characters uh not a ton of people from of hispanic descent but there are a few never as far as i know been there's been maybe one or two Battlestar sort of has a hinted at. yeah <laughs> Battlestar has more of it Battlestar's first, a lot of hispanics yeah yeah and a few gay characters as i recall there's definitely oh, yeah. plenty Jada's of that gay. yeah yeah, and yeah, yes, Gata, exactly. And Caprica, um, Caprica 6. Everybody's yeah. boning everybody in Caprica. Yes, yes. But the point is, it's a problem in Star Trek. There have been movements to get them to write more gay characters, and they haven't. So they need, they should be putting more gay characters in. I hope there's one in the new show. Uh, should it be Sulu? I don't know. Should the explanation, is the to me the explanation that he's gay in this new timeline, but not in the old one is kind of weak because I don't understand how a ship blowing up would change your sexual orientation. So they shouldn't have tried that argument, but I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that follows Takai online, but you know, the fact that he cares more about the consistency of the character than advancing a political agenda is really stunning. You know, well, I, think I mean, he, almost I, no one would take that position in his place. That he's gay, he but he doesn't just, want his character to be the gay. It's crazy. Yeah. I think he believes, just like I do, that you can have both. You can preserve old, pre-established stuff and have more representation. You just have to be not afraid to introduce new stuff. And and if sexuality is a continuum and not a binary, as we right. you know, then it's possible that the world, the universe-changing events of uh, Star Trek and Into Darkness could have, you know, moved him, you know, into a different type of sexuality. I mean, it's the different, it's the uh, non-prime universe. Who knows? Anything could happen. Sure, whatever. I, I think it's it's kind of a weak sauce. They did talk to, to her, say, though. I agree with you, but they did. They, they. Uh, I mean, they claim that Lynn, Peg, and uh, John Chow all reached out to Takai, and they said he was pretty nice about it. He was like, "Look, I'm going to post this. This is my opinion, but I respect you." Like he wasn't like you know nasty about it or anything like that. That's no. what I heard. Yeah. No, and none of the interviews he's given, he's been nasty about it. No, he's of the opinion that his character marries a woman and has children in Gene Roddenberry's 
world and that's who created this character and we should ultimately respect that guy character's vision while also creating new characters who better represent the diversity of humanity. I'm with him on this. I am also of the with Justin Lin and Simon Pegg that it was about time to create a gay character for the show. I don't know. There's not there's not an easy answer to this. I kind of think everybody's right uh, and that I don't have a t- lot of information or personal stake in it to really be able to talk. Well, they said they, they I mean they, they intelligently wanted to about be, this. Yeah, they wanted to be casual about it. That was the whole right. point, you know. Let's not rub it in people's faces or, or even dwell on it. Just have it be a thing. It's you know when it's not supposed to be a thing. It, that, that's what's. You know, I mean, bring it back to the millennial generation, you know, I mean, you know, gayness just isn't a major issue for kids younger than us, the way it for was. For some, but, not for all, I mean. No, no, I'm saying compared to previous generations, or maybe no, probably even our generation. not. But they anticipated that there is that scene where it's clearly Sulu and his husband, and they have a daughter, and they're holding, you know, they're grabbing each other's backs romantically. They knew that that moment was going to be a thing if they didn't get out on top of it. So, you know, that that moment, that scene was going to be talked about by people online as, oh, my God, Sulu's gay in this new universe if they didn't. uh, So they wanted to address it first, control the media cycle as much as they could. And I thought they did as good a job as they could. You know, uh, again, Takei isn't is right for the most part. And I kind of think Peg and Lynn and and all and Cho are also right for to some extent. And I don't think anybody did it to hurt anybody else. So whatever. No, no, no. Um, I want well, mm. Star Trek Discovery, the new show, yep. create a new gay character. Just have him. Or two or three. Or three or whatever. I mean, just yeah. you've got a whole universe. You can make up new stuff too that can meet the needs, uh, that can meet a real need. And Star Trek does need yep. more diversity in this area. It needs more gay characters or lesbian characters. It could use some trans characters. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of different kinds of people who would probably like having a dis- a utopian vision of the future where they're part of it as well, where they're part of the fundamental building blocks of it as well. Yeah, um, that's that, that's all great points. I, I will leave with one final little story that I heard from John Cho about this, and then we'll do final thoughts and sign off, which was that he says he was the one who's, who wanted his partner to be Asian – Mm-hmm. Because he says his you know gay Asian friends in real life they rarely date other Asians because there's such a stigma in the community about it. Okay, that it's just like you know like it's like almost like and this is just quoting him. If you listen mm-hmm. to him on Empire podcast, that they, they feel like a sense of shame or they don't want shame on their families or whatever. And so he said he wanted this to be a message that in the Star Trek future. It's not a big deal in the 24th century, you know, to to be both gay and, you know, co-ethnic or whatever yeah. at the same time he talked about. It. And I just thought that was cool. Just the fact that an actor is thinking that far into it. You know what I mean? Totally. People, see, people tend to think, and you know me, I'm very actor-centric and pro-actor. I, I, it, it's so easy to dismiss them as just people who want to be famous and who mail it in when they get scripts and so forth. But right. That's not really the case, you know, even with a guy like John Chow. I mean, and, and that's the best, and this will be my final thought, and I'll let you have the final, final thought, 
which is that the best thing I can say about Beyond is that the cast really cared about this movie, even though it was rushed, pushed up, and shot in 76 days, which is almost impossible for a movie like this, well under three months. You never hear about that for an epic movie like this. They cared about it so much that they just made it great, and Justin Lin completely was in the spirit of it. So Matt, I'll, I'll leave for you for the closing words about this movie, which it seems like I've been critical of, but only because I love this franchise so much, and I love this particular sub-franchise so much. You know, I just want everything to be, you know, how I want it. But, um, but I, I, I think with what they had, with what they could do, uh, was about is is good to expect. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, and I honestly don't think you've been as critical as you maybe think you think you I have. Know, I, I, I get the sense <laughs> I, maybe it's just me doing a good no, job right. talking about it, but you for the most part have been pretty high up on this movie. Okay, good, good. Look, m- my final thoughts on this movie are: first, overall, I recommend it. I recommend everybody. If you like Star Trek, you go see it. You won't be bored no matter what. Yeah, I guarantee I, I think you that. You can get your money's worth. I think it's fun, um, and I think it's very, very enjoyable. My biggest issues with it, the the stupid Lord of the Rings reject special effect aliens at the beginning are kind of weak. Oh, also Kirk on the motorcycle looks so CGI. It was hilarious. Yeah, but he likes motorcycles, so I didn't mind that. <laughs> I, I didn't like the aliens. I thought Krull was kind of a, a weak bad guy. Another guy just motivated by personal revenge, um, and I, which sucks, but whatever. It doesn't kill the movie the way Khan or fake con, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch con. Uh, oh, really... come on. And, and honestly, how pumped were you to actually see Idris Elba? You didn't think you were going to. I was so pumped. I was yeah, like, I thought... oh, yeah, baby, we see him. Yeah, That was a twist I didn't see coming. Me uh, is that wasn't, in fact, an alien. I didn't love ever much else about him, but when you actually see him uh, and realize what this is and you get, you know, the Idris Elba monologue because he's great at those kind of monologues, um, he's so psychotic in that video. It's just crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like his character in Pacific Rim or, or any, you know, Idris Elba has that great. No, that was pure madness there. I'd never seen him that crazy before. He's usually his rage is like Stringer Bell is very under control, you know? Yeah, but you can see it's always sense with him. Something is bubbling up underneath. Uh, and with, uh, what is his name? Is like Corporal Pentecost or some some really terrible, weird name in Pacific Rim. Uh, you can tell that he's on he's on the verge of punching. Uh, Which they are making a second one against the 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 best uh, decisions of all smart people out there. They're making another Pacific Rim movie. I can't believe it'll it. I'd be lousy, but maybe it won't. I'll probably go see it. <laughs> if it's got John Boyega. Yeah, exactly. So if it's got John Boyega having robots punch monsters for two hours, I'm sold. John Boyega by himself is better than the two leads combined in the first movie. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) we can do a a Pacific Rim. (laughs) Right, okay. Yeah, that's another day. Yeah, that's just to quickly though. We should bookmark some of the bizarre properties coming up the next couple of years that we just have heard about, and mm-hmm. just do completely baseless speculation with no facts whatsoever. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> um, so yeah. So anyways, you were saying yeah. So final thoughts. So yeah, I mean, yeah. it was a well produced movie. I thought it was really well directed, well produced. Yeah, I think it's fun. It's real good. Problems I have with it are Uhura crawl and the stupid aliens at the beginning, and that. Oddly enough, the only Star Trek pre-existing franchise they seem to want to talk about is Enterprise. In the 08 movie, they mention Admiral Archer's prize beagle. Archer is the main character on Enterprise, and he has a beagle. And then in this one, 
Krull is talking about fighting the Zindi, who are the 9-11 bad guys in Season 3 of Enterprise mm. and the Romulans. So I get you can't talk about Worf in a show that takes place – in a movie that takes place before Worf was born. But it still feels like you have this giant universe of Star Trek, and you keep bringing in not much, and what you bring in is the worst stuff that existed beforehand. I wasn't nuts about that, but that's like a super minor nitpicky thing. My biggest issue was I didn't like love Jayla and Uhura was woefully underused. Yeah. Best parts about it are really the dialogue between uh, Spock and Bones. Those scenes alone are worth the admission price. They are so funny and they so do good. reestablish the original trinity of the show. I love Quinto, Kirk, man. Bones, we haven't talked about this enough. I want to see really Quinto. He's a fantastic actor. He, he I, I don't know why he's not in more stuff. He's gay in real life. I don't know if that affects his status, but he certainly projects heterosexuality. Well. It does, but uh, um, no, I mean, yeah, he was freaky and scary, and on uh, as he, on heroes, he, he was, was the one memorable thing about that show. I mean, yeah, that's Siler, the one thing I remember. I, yeah, I remember Hero, the main character, who was pretty cool. Um, the you oh, know the Asian guy, yeah, yeah. He, I liked him and his friend. Um, and then uh, God, he God. was in American Horror Story. I can't remember how many seasons of that he was in. He that show is so. He's in the Snowden movie with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, directed by Oliver Stone. He's one of the co-leads. Or Good, great. Maybe it'll be okay. I don't know. Um, the point is, they've got mad talent, and their yeah. biggest problem is they just can't utilize all the talent all the time. I mean. Which yes. is a problem with a giant cast. Yes. And in the TV show, you can get away from it. And the uh, Empire podcast that you sent me, the first one, right. talks about this, about how you they realize pretty early on you can't have every episode be about every character. And so they kind of just would alternate who the focal character was right. each week. In a movie, you can't get away with that because you don't have that, that kind of those number of hours. Um, but when you have a cast of nine or ten – you're going to have to abandon some versus others. The problem is when everybody in the cast is good, you always feel like you're pushing somebody talented to the back. Anton Yelchin is very, very minor in this movie, and Zoe Saldana is barely in this movie. I mean, you could pretty much remove her completely, and other than the breakup scenes, and even then you could have Spock just talking about how they broke up, you wouldn't miss her presence at all. Can, can I put a crazy theory forward here? Mm-hmm. Which is oh, spoiler! They break up. They broke up. <laughs> right, but then they're socializing at the end. Right. Um, <laughs> so we talk about how you know prequels never work. Usually, filming movies back to back or back to back to back never work. But when you look at the three Star Trek reboot movies, which were released over a seven-year period, and see what works and what doesn't work. It, it makes a pretty strong ar argument for the Lord of the Rings model, right? I mean, imagine if, you know, they could spend five years making three Star Trek movies that were specifically a trilogy mm -hmm. with the cast devoted to just doing that and making right. it a five-year mission over three movies. It would never happen. It's never going to happen, but it's Except it already happened. Star Trek yeah. two, Star Trek three, and Star Trek four are a trilogy within the original six films. But they weren't filmed back to back to back in that way. No, they weren't. But they are one coherent story that starts with Khan and ends with Voyage Home. I thought you haven't seen those movies. 
I know about them though. Oh, okay. Actually, I, yeah, I talk about the fourth one being cheesy, but kind of endearing, you know, coming back to the present. But what makes it cool is they come back in a cloaked uh, Klingon bird of prey. Right. <laughs> that they stole because the inter- Enterprise was destroyed. Um, oh, God, I'm such a nerd. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just perpetually getting more unhappy about blockbuster movies, man. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I am not going to lie. It, this PG-13 thing is... I, I'm getting to the point where I might only start seeing uh, rated R movies, honestly. Um, or at least a waiting. Um, I'm definitely glad I saw this in the theater, but you know, thematically and just looks wise, it's just everything's starting to look the same. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I guess one thing that they did do really well in this movie, it, it was a spending a lot of time on a planet as opposed to just a starship. That's always a complaint about Star Trek in general. A planet um, that wasn't earth. Plan that wasn't Earth and looked cool and like fantastical and like it definitely did not look like Earth. Like I did yeah. a great job with that, I thought. Um, but uh, you know, but 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 shake up the ships they were in and the situations and and I, I thought they did a good job with that overall. Um, but yeah, I think they they're lacking a clear central vision because JJ was just flying by the seat of his pants with the first one and he just hit gold, you know. Um, I guess that's why I would give the credit um, over Force Awakens of the first Star Trek reboot, just because it just feels a little more spontaneous and wild and sort of how it was made. Um, you know, Force Awakens, it's very clear the decisions that were made at every step along the way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I watch so many movies. Um, so, all right, man. So this was great. We like the movie. We recommend the movie. If you made it this far, you've probably seen the movie. So that's awesome. Um, and what, if you haven't, we haven't yeah. spoiled everything and we haven't ruined every no. scene. There's still plenty of stuff to see that we, we didn't even talk about, about the beastie boys. I can't believe it. That was like the yeah. coolest part of the movie. We'll, we'll leave you with this. The coolest part of the movie involves the beastie boys being very central. And it makes complete sense why they're there. They're exactly. not actually there. Why a song of theirs is there. Yes. Yeah, yes. The Beastie Boys music. Um, all right, man. Well, what I don't know. The rest of this year, we've talked about Doctor Strange, Rogue One. Um, uh, I don't know. Creed, isn't that coming out this year still? What's that? Assassin's Creed. Is that this year or next year? It's such a cool concept and Michael Fassbender, but the video game movies just aren't working. They I, I, never have. <laughs> and they never have. Although, if there is any video game that was actually made to be a movie, it's Assassin's Creed. I mean, yeah, but you could say the same thing about Prince of Persia, and that movie was god awful. Right, right. But but Assassin's Creed actually it works in historical shit. I mean, they're trying to. It's supposed to be the Inquisition. I have no idea how they're going to handle the expulsion from Spain in a video game movie. I mean, are the Jews just going to be there? Are they even going to mention it? Like they might mention it. I don't (laughs) exactly think that's the point. You know, usually, I mean, did you play the video games? You know what they're about? I I, I played a couple of them for a while. I I've I've lost interest, but I I, I dig the aesthetic and think it translates well onto the screen. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's not I mean, super- the trailers have visuals taken right from the game. You know, yes. there's a scene where Michael Fassbender he jumps, jumps off, off a tall right. building into, into a, a hay bale to hide or yeah. whatever. So, yep, I love that. I love. I thought that was great. But yeah. I, who knows? With Fassbender, you could make anything happen. Um, 
So I don't know, man. I guess just like when I saw, you know, I saw Hunt for the, uh, for the Wilder People and then saw it again. I'm just, it's like movies like that and Birdman and Her and just Moonrise Kingdom. I'm just not getting enough of that stuff, you know, the sort of like feel good but still kind of deep indie movies, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, um, yeah, I don't know. I just need to cleanse the palate a little bit. What, what you, you watching anything new these days? You want to share with the audience? Then we'll, we'll, we'll sign off here. Um, what am I watching these days? Uh, for TV preacher, um, has turned out to be as good as I'd hoped for the most part. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that. Gets great reviews Uh, online. Yeah. It's really weird and kooky. And I mean, it's a TV show, so obviously you, you can't rate it the same way you'd rate movies, but there is some pretty visceral violence in it. So it might appease some of your needs, um otherwise 12 monkeys wrapped up and honestly i've kind of i haven't brought myself to watch the last couple episodes because i've kind of lost interest in it um and then a new thing just started up on sci-fi second season of a show called dark matter which is people on a ship it takes a lot of its cues from firefly even if the sense of humor is radically different um and it's not as you know, intentionally funny as, as Firefly was. Um, but it, it, it meets some of the same needs. Uh, so I kind of like it, um, also on sci-fi. Uh, and then I'm waiting for the strain to start up so I can hate watch that. And then we'll be back (laughs) to the superhero shows on, uh, WB. By the way, I haven't listened to it yet, but, uh, the, uh, Comic-Con podcast from the Nerdist, they interview, uh, your girl Tatiana Maslany mm-hmm. um, could be cool. Sounded interesting. Still have to catch up on that. That sounds like a cool show. Um, Orphan Black. Orphan, Orphan Black. Black is yeah. great. It, it, yeah. It's not. I think it's got one more season to it, and then it's done. Oh, okay. And I think you that's can, you can already see the end. Yeah. Well, I I think they're running out of idea. Every episode yeah. season is like you think you know. It's like the plot of the Bourne movies. You think you've stopped the bad guy, but it turns out the bad guy has a bigger bad guy they answer yeah. to, and then you actually have to go they like didn't that. even try that in this movie, which was very refreshing. The bad guy was the bad guy the whole time. It was Tommy Lee Jones. All right, Spoiler well, the alert. three Bourne movies. It's <laughs> yes, all yes. you think you've killed the bad guy, but there's yeah. a bigger bad guy. You know, it's the thanks Mario, but our prince is in another castle sort of a deal. Um, <laughs> and every season of orphan black seems to raise the stakes and introduce another level to the bad guys. But the last season ends with, unless there's going to be aliens all of a sudden, which I don't think there is, there's nowhere else the show can go once they stop these bad guys, because they have basically gone back to the source of the whole thing. So, I think uh, one more season is all they should do. Um, but the first couple of seasons are spectacular. I just, you know me, I, I love movies. I don't watch a lot of TV. But even the TV shows I love, Battlestar, four seasons, although <laughs> really it was seven seasons because most of the seasons were 20 episodes. Right. Um, so, it, you know, it depends how you want to put it. But still, you know, four four season arcs was plenty the Wire, you know, specifically got way less good the fifth and final season. The mm-hmm. season three and four are considered, by, by most Wire fans, I think, to be the best by far. Right. Many would just say four. Season four. Um, you know, I mean, 
there just aren't that you know i mean even shows like the office stopped being funny after season four the only exception is seinfeld because seinfeld took like three or four seasons to get their feet under them Mm -hmm. and so their funniest seasons were like four five six seven and then it sort of went down the last couple eight nine or whatever but most it's in the first three or four seasons right i mean can you think of a lot of shows breaking bad right went out on high notes. The last season of Mad Men was some of the most complex, interesting storytelling they were doing. Breaking Bad, I thought, was consistently excellent start to finish. It was consistently excellent, but I still think the third and fourth seasons of Breaking Bad are better than the fifth season. Possibly. The the fifth season introduced the Nazi skinhead guys who I thought were kind of weak compared with, like, Gus or Tuco or some of the other bad guys. Exactly. Gus was the best. Yeah, Gus was far and away the best, but yeah. you know, or the crazy twin got twin like the twins, the silent twins. They were really oh yeah, yeah. The other uh, Tuco's kids or brothers or Tuco. I remember the first. Oh, oh god, yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, Tuco was a good bad guy for season one. Just He's you so know, scary. Yeah. A, a, Gang banging meth head crazy person. Which, by the way, I mean that show. I can't believe there was no, you know, uh, charges of racism against that. I mean, other than Hank's partner, who was Latino, like they made the Latino bad guys not just bad guys, but like psychotic, psychopathic, you know, rage uh, serial murderers. All you know, including Gus. Gus, Yeah, although I think Gus Fring breaks a lot of the. Uh, boundary a lot of the stereotypes about how Latinos are portrayed as when it, when they're bad guys uh, in the same way that um, sure he, the, well, he was the one subtle one yeah right in- including the fact that I don't know if they ever exactly said it but it's heavily implied that he was gay which alone makes him very very different from yep. when you think of Latino characters specifically villains in movies and TV shows how they've been portrayed in the past um you think it was heavily implied? I I I just thought they teased it, but you you think there were more than a few signals? Well, he when he, he freaks out so much when his partner is killed in front of him when they they try to pitch the drug. Oh uh, yes. Now. You know he keeps saying he's my partner, yeah. but he looks very very forlorn, and the totally the hatred that. he feels towards that family to the me yeah. yeah it doesn't quite seem justified if all he sees them as is business partners. There seems to me to be some personal revenge thing to that. It's not stated. I, I think it's – if you interpreted his character as gay, the show definitely wanted you to think that. Um, or I at least think – you know, in season five, they introduced skinheads, but they also yeah. introduced the, the international distribution. Right. And so Lydia. She Lydia. Was not great. I actually like that actress, but yeah, she didn't have a lot to do. Um and, you know, when you're selling overseas, it's just not as visceral as selling in your backyard, you know, yeah. like as soon as it became internationalized. But it didn't matter because at that point it was just all about Walt, you know, completely melting down to whole new levels of, of mm-hmm. meltdowns. That also has the be- maybe the best scene in TV ever where Jesse Pinkman is eating dinner between the Walt and his wife who aren't, who aren't talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Jesse's trying to make conversation like, oh, these yep. peas are great. She's like, they're frozen <laughs> from the grocery store. You know? <laughs> oh, man, that show's awesome. Yeah, there's not a lot of Breaking Bads out there. I don't know. I mean, even you wouldn't put up Game of Thrones to Breaking Bad, right? I mean, no. Yeah. So, all right, man. Cool. Well, I don't know what we'll <laughs> do next on, but uh, I still want to do the religion in the movies thing, man. It doesn't have to be super specific. Just talk about, you know. 
movies. You know, we both have religion, academic backgrounds. Uh, just a thought, throwing it out there. Yeah, really I'm always down. I think you're gonna have to come up with, uh, you know, email me a few specific ideas you want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and and maybe I I haven't read a lot of like academic religious uh, religion texts in a long time. So that's cool. Now I might have the to audience. spend some time <laughs> Wikipediaing what Talal Assad actually was talking about again. But uh, it should be fine. I can keep you posted about Talal Assad. Yeah, um, Jay Z Smith, him I remember. <laughs> Clifford Geertz. Talk a little bit about Max Weber. Who, All right. Uh, so, so final question, and we're gonna sign off. If right. This is the final Star Trek movie, right? Of this of this crew, and maybe for the foreseeable future. Do we take anything from it, or just a just a a trilogy of movies in which two of them were pretty good and one was not so good? I I think these movies proved that Star Trek is adaptable to different tastes, to different generations. I don't know that two of the three really preserved enough of what the old Star Trek was so appealing about it that they could really be called legitimately Star Trek. But the third movie proved that even that is possible. Maybe not 100%, but you know, I, I would say this felt like an 85% of a, of a real pure Star Trek product to me. So it did. if there's one big lesson about Star Trek is that it may not be – Star Wars and how deeply entrenched it is in our identity as Americans to the point that you could just produce Star Star Wars stuff every year forever and people would probably buy it. I think Star Trek has enough to it that people will always find appealing that it will always hang around that I would actually in some ways compare it more to Doctor Who. It could go away for a while but then someone will just come up with another way to use it and bring it back, and it will be as if it never left. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, my parting thought will just be that I remember watching it and being like, this does feel like classic Trek. I could almost see them making this like a three-part miniseries of like three one-hour movies, which I think is not an insult so much as, you know, commenting on the fact that television is the best medium for this universe i think i mean as great as these trek movies have been honestly nothing it's not been i mean the, the first one was transcendent just because it was transcendent sci-fi movie making it happened to be star trek mm-hmm. it wasn't transcendent trek it was just transcendent movie making you know but yeah and and so I, I, you know again with, with with Netflix and YouTube doing series now I mean with you know it's interesting to think if we're going to see sort of big budget television stuff maybe I think it won't be this will. kind of budget yeah and what you were talking about about three one hour movies or something I have this image in the back of my mind of Star Trek going on Netflix uh, and just considering the quality of the TV shows Netflix produces. That's Marvel. what I've been saying, man. Yeah. I don't know why they're not on Netflix. It's the perfect fit. There's so many they want this thing with CBS All Access. Ugh. I mean, maybe – look, alternate idea. Maybe yeah. this Discovery doesn't do well enough to justify a network TV show, but maybe it does well enough to, commit, to try to create something that they then sell to Netflix, which will get better ratings, will have a higher budget because Netflix commands more revenue just because it's fucking Netflix – uh, and so we get a much better version of a digital-only Star Trek show. If uh, someone pitches Netflix a brilliant concept for Star Trek, right. they, they would make it happen with CBS. I have no doubt. 
I mean, they made it happen with Marvel. But they'd have to convince CBS first. CBS would have to be the ones to relinquish the right to to own it and keep it in the CBS family. I mean, they're the rate limiting step. I'm pretty sure. Well, that or we still give you thirty percent, and you don't have to put any money up front or something. Well, like that's that. That'll help. Yeah, I think it's more a payoff than t- completely taking the property. They still want their name on it, and they know it's going to be good quality. And it's like Marvel with Jessica Jones and Daredevil. You know, it's like in some ways that's more a stamp of approval than a lot of the t- the movies we've seen, right? I mean, just in terms of quality and and uh, being adult or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the other thing is we could get adult Star Trek, which seems yeah. impossible, but. Maybe on Netflix we get Star Trek with nudity and excessive violence, right? <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure I want that. Uh, no, no. Well, I think if anything, Tesla's. Star Wars would lend itself more to that, just because you know it, of its romanticization of problematic things like violence and things like that. So, um, but anyway, all right, buddy. Well, this was great. Glad I got you on for this one. Any parting thoughts for the audience? No, go see it. And Jesse, when you go see it again, yes. if you do, let me know if your opinion of it goes up. Cause it's going to. I can guarantee you. All right, because you gave it a seven and a half when you texted me, and that felt low to me. Yeah. And your criticisms of it to me don't seem to be enough to justify no. a C. So no. I'm curious to see what you think about it on second viewing. Uh, most, I'm, like I said, at most movies that I love, it's the second viewing. That that gets me. So I'm pretty sure it's going to go up a lot. I was just trying to be objective uh, but, uh, to the extent that I can. So cool, man. Well, we'll be in touch to see what's going on uh, down the road. Take it easy, bro. You too. Later, buddy.